Part 3. The Path of Practice A New Going Forth Tudong is a Thai word derived from the Pali Dutanga, which means to wear away, and is the name given to the 13 ascetic practices the Buddha permitted monks to undertake in order to intensify their efforts to wear away their defilements. In Thailand, the word has expanded in meaning. Monks who have left their monastery and are wandering through the countryside sleeping rough, usually practicing a number of the Dutanga observances, are called Tudong monks and are said to be on Tudong. At the beginning of 1947, accompanied by a friend, Venerable Tawan, Lung Po set off on Tudong, a long trek westwards towards central Thailand. The two monks walked barefoot. They carried their iron bowls in a cloth bag on one shoulder and their glots, their umbrella tent on the other. Villages were rare and beyond the cultivated area that surrounded them, now tired and dry after the harvest, the rutted tracks they walked along were often overgrown. It must have been a harsh baptism into the Tudong life for Luang Por and his companion. Although the days might have been hot, nights on the forest floor would have been chilling and their one daily meal austere. The Buddha did not want his monks to be self-sufficient hermits. He laid down a number of rules in the monks' discipline aimed at ensuring that they had daily contact with the lay community. Monks cannot dig the earth pick the fruit from trees, keep food overnight, or cook. They may eat only that food which has been offered directly into their hands or bowl. The Tudong monk goes on alms round early in the morning, eats whatever he needs in one sitting from his bowl, and relinquishes whatever is left. Therefore, if he wants to eat, and he usually has a good appetite after walking the whole previous day, he has to make sure that he spends the night within easy walking distance of a village. In the mornings, as Lung Por and Venerable Tawan passed through the ragged hamlets of Sisagate and Surin, villagers would have rushed out excitedly to put food in the monks' bowls, but it would be mainly lumps of plain sticky rice that the two monks received, and rarely more than a few chilies or a banana to eat with it. The villagers were poor, and being caught unprepared, they had little close at hand to offer the lean, dark monks that suddenly appeared out of the forest, walking slowly past their houses, heads bowed, silent as ghosts. Gradually, the two monks got used to eating a big lump of sticky rice as their daily meal. The dry heat in their throats and lead weight in their bellies staved off hunger if nothing else. They settled into a steady schedule of walking and would cover some 25 kilometers a day, usually in single file, trying to still the stubbornly rebellious thoughts that surged into their minds as they walked. In the evening, they would look for a stream to bathe in, rinse out their sweat-soaked underrobes, and, having put up their glot under a tree, spend the night practicing meditation. A glot is a handmade umbrella with a hook on top, which is suspended from a line strung between two trees. A cylindrical mosquito net is hung from the umbrella, creating a makeshift tent. 
Their first major test was the notorious Dong Peiyayan, a huge and dense forest that had, until recent years, virtually isolated the Isan Plateau from the rest of the country. By this time, although its wild elephants, tigers and boars were rarely seen on the cart tracks along which the two monks were walking, malarial mosquitoes were a constant threat. The laying of the railway line to Isan a few years previously had cost many lives. Poisonous snakes abounded, particularly cobras and the placid but highly venomous banded crate. In the evenings, after putting up their glots, the two monks would chant verses of protection. Sitting under a tree in the darkness, every sound seemed significant and threatening. Even if the larger beasts left them alone, they were aware that a bite from one of the centipedes or scorpions in the dead leaves around them would mean an agonizing and sleepless night. Eventually, Luang Po and Venerable Tawan emerged unharmed from the jungle into the dry rice fields of Saratburi. From there, they made their way northwards to the province of Lopburi and Wat Kawongkot, the monastery of Luang Po Pao, a forest monk renowned for his meditation prowess. Their destination proved to be a steep-sided and rock-strewn hill, honeycombed with caves, in which the resident monks dwelt on simple wooden platforms. A modest wooden dhamma hall and a kitchen nestled amongst the trees above them were the only visible signs of habitation as they climbed a well-swept path up the hill. The raucous sound of the cicadas that greeted them, rather than detracting from the silence, seemed somehow to be its voice. Disappointment awaited them, however. They were informed by a resident monk that Luang Po Pao had passed away a few months prior to their arrival. They were given permission to stay for a while to rest after their journey and to decide on their next move. It was the first time that they had lived in a forest monastery and they soon realized that even without its teacher, there was much here that they could learn from. The textbook definition of a forest monastery is any monastery, even theoretically one completely devoid of trees, situated at least 500 bow lengths, approximately one kilometer, from the nearest village. The forest monastery's relative seclusion is intended to provide an environment in which its inhabitants may live in a way resembling that of the monks in the Buddha's time, focusing their efforts on the training of body, speech and mind that leads to enlightenment. To maintain this focus, Thai forest monasteries do not emphasize academic study and they restrict their contacts with the local lay community. The rationale of the forest monastery is that it is only through monastics realizing the various stages of enlightenment that the essence of Buddhism can be safeguarded and authentically transmitted from one generation to the next. It was precisely in search of such a monastery that Luang Po had come so far, and he felt inspired by the diligence and gentle aloofness of the monks of Wat Khao Wongkot. Luang Po was keen to learn about the way of practice that Luang Po Pao had established, to study the teachings that the master had written on the cave walls, and to continue his study of the Vinaya.
It was with these considerations in mind that Luang Po and Venerable Tawan asked for and were granted permission to spend their first rains retreat as Tudong monks at Wat Khao Wongkot. A prominent characteristic of Luang Po's practice and in later years of his teachings was the emphasis that he placed on adherence to the monk's discipline. His frustration with the ignorance and lack of interest that his fellow monks showed towards the vinaya contributed significantly to his decision to leave the village monastic system. He had long been fascinated by the study of the vinaya, but it was only after setting off on Tudong that he felt free to approach it as a practical code by which to live the monk's life. He began to devote himself to an intense scrutiny of the two most detailed texts available, the classic 5th century manual, The Path of Purification, the Visuddhimagga, and the 19th century Thai commentary, Pubbasika Vannana. These two works, especially the latter, tackle subtle, arguably nitpicking details of the rules in an antique, dusty prose that would tax the enthusiasm of all but the most ardent. Luang Po studied them avidly, almost to obsession. Seeing the Danger That year, 1947, Wat Kawongkot also played host to a senior monk, originally from Cambodia, who was to leave a deep impression on Luang Po. This monk possessed the distinction of being proficient in both the academic study of Buddhist doctrine and the practice of meditation, an unusual accomplishment in Thailand where an unfortunate split had long existed between the scholar monks and the meditators. For the most part, the scholars did not meditate and the meditators did not study. Consequently, neither group held the other in very high esteem. However, this monk, whose name has not been recorded and henceforth will be referred to as Ajahn Ke, was blessed with a remarkable memory for the intricacies of the discipline and profundity of the discourses, the suttas. At the same time, he adhered to the life of a Tudong monk, most at ease, surrounded by the natural silence of forests, mountains and caves. One night during the retreat, there occurred an incident that Luang Po found so inspiring that years later he would often relate it to his disciples. Ajahn Ke had kindly offered to help Luang Po with his study of the Vinaya. Following a long and fruitful session one late afternoon, Luang Po, having taken his daily bath at the well, climbed up the hill to practice meditation on its cool, breezy ridge. Sometime after ten o'clock, Luang Po was practicing walking meditation when he heard the sound of cracking twigs and someone or something moving towards him in the darkness. At first, he assumed it was a creature out hunting for its dinner, but as the sound got closer, he made out the form of Ajahn Ke emerging from the forest. Ajahn, what brings you up here so late at night? I explained a point of Vinaya to you incorrectly today. You shouldn't have gone to all this trouble just for that, sir. You don't have a light to show the way. It could have waited until tomorrow. No, it could not. 
Suppose for some reason or other I was to die tonight, and in future you were to teach other people what I explained to you. It would be bad gumma for me and for many others. Ajahn Ke carefully explained the point again, and once he was certain that it had been clearly understood, returned into the night. Lung Po had often noted the phrase in the texts describing the sincere monk as one who sees the danger in the smallest fault. Here, at last, was someone who paid more than lip service to that ideal, who genuinely felt the closeness of death, and who possessed such scrupulousness that it made him willing to risk climbing a treacherous mountain path in the middle of the night. It was a powerful and memorable lesson. During this first retreat dedicated to meditation, Luang Po was still unsure of the path of practice most suited to him and experimented with a number of different meditation techniques. At one point, he decided to try using a rosary and in an effort to make one for himself, he gathered up the requisite 108 seeds from the branch of a tabak tree broken off by playful monkeys. Stymied by a lack of thread, however, he was forced to improvise and spent the next three days dropping the seeds one by one into a tin. Unsurprisingly, it was not a success, and he returned to mindfulness of breathing. Luang Po still did not find meditation easy, but he persevered, constantly observing what worked and what did not. His biggest frustration was that he felt more at peace when he was not meditating than when he was. He reflected again and again on the fact that the more effort he put into meditation, the more his breathing became laboured and the less his mind would settle. It seemed that meditation made things worse rather than better. And then he made an important discovery. My determination had turned into attachment. That's why I got no results. Things got burdensome because of that craving that I carried with me into practice. Ghosts in the Night Lung Po's fear of ghosts had not been completely displaced by his growing courage, and every now and again it would flare up alarmingly. He usually kept it smothered, out of sight and mind, through a nightly recitation of protective spells and incantations before he slept. One night, however, after a long period of meditation high up on the ridge of Kawonkot, Lung Po felt such a surge of confidence in the power of his virtue that he omitted the recitations. Before long, he would regret his decision. The idea of virtue as protection is a hallowed one in the Buddhist world. It's a concept that became a cornerstone in Lung Po's teachings, especially to the laity, and helps to explain the great emphasis that he was to place on keeping precepts. It was his firm belief that, in addition to its vital role in the development of peace and wisdom, virtuous conduct, long sustained, has an enormous intrinsic power. 
Luang Po had experienced a growing sense of integrity and self-respect through his efforts to keep the vast number of monastic observances scrupulously. But as yet, he had never quite dared to put his convictions in the protective power of his virtue to the test. He believed the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha to be the supreme refuges, but could not deny his barely suppressed fear of malevolent spirits. Yet on this cool and silent night, he felt invincible, ready to take the risk. The moment that Luang Po lay down to sleep, he became aware of a chilling and thickening of the air around his glot. A malign presence began to bear down upon him. It was as if it had been lurking, waiting for the young monk to forget his chance, and through his hubris he had made himself its prey. Suddenly, Luang Po was pinned down on his back, paralyzed. Whatever was crushing him seemed to exude a crude and elemental evil. He realized it was the kind of ghost called Pi Am. As the pressure intensified on his chest, he struggled desperately for breath. Somehow, he managed to maintain his presence of mind. He quelled the feelings of panic. Mentally, he recited the word Putto over and over again with great determination. No other thoughts could enter his mind, and Lung Po found refuge in the recitation. The strength of the evil force was immense. Although checked, it put up a bitter struggle. Eventually, the pressure weakened. Lung Po gradually began to recover movement in his body. It was over. After the shock wore off, there came a wave of exultation. He had survived an ordeal as bad as his worst dreams, purely through the power of his virtue and meditation on the Buddha. He could ditch his spells. This incident gave Luang Po's intellectual conviction in the power of virtue a strong emotional boost. Following it, he increased his care and attention to the precepts in the monk's discipline, restraining himself from even the most minor infringements. It was at this time that he finally plucked up the courage to dispose of his small emergency stash of money. In the Thai Sangha of the time, only the forest monks heeded the Buddha's prohibition against the receiving and use of money. Lung Po himself, so strict in other areas of the discipline, had balked at abandoning the safety net that money provided. But here, in Wat Khao Wongkot, he determined that from now on, there was to be no transgression of his precepts under any circumstances. His problems with sexual desire were more intractable. Shortly before his father died, it had nearly led him out of the monkhood. At one time, I considered disrobing. I'd been a monk about five or six years at the time, and I thought of the Buddha. Six years and he was enlightened. But my mind was still concerned with the world. I wanted to return to it. Perhaps I should go out and make a contribution to the world for a short while, and then I'll know what it's all about. Even the Buddha had a son. 
Maybe entering the monkhood without any worldly experience at all is too extreme. I kept reflecting on it until some understanding arose. Yes, it's quite a good idea, but the worrying thing is that this Buddha is not the same as the last one. Something inside me resisted. I'm only afraid that this Buddha will sink down into the world and the mud. At Wat Kaowongkot, Luang Po was searching for ways of overcoming lust. He believed that sense restraint and non-indulgence in sexual thoughts would cause sexual desire to weaken. I didn't look at a woman's face for the whole of the rains retreat. I allowed myself to speak to women, but not to look at their faces. My eyes would strain upwards. They wanted to look so much I almost died. At the end of the retreat, I went on alms round in Lopburi town. Three months had passed since I last looked at a woman's face, and I wanted to know what it would be like. The defilements must be withering away by now, I thought. As soon as I made the decision, I looked at an approaching woman, oh, dressed in bright red. Just a single glance, and my legs turned to jelly. I was totally discouraged. When was I ever going to be free from defilement? Sense restraint was certainly a key element of practice, but was not sufficient in itself. Instructing monks many years later, he said, In the beginning, you have to keep your distance from women. But the true abandonment of lust comes only from developing the wisdom that sees things as they are. Luang Bu Man It was during the rains retreat at Wat Kawangkot that Luang Po first heard the name of the monk who was to become a legendary figure in Thailand, the most revered monk of his generation. Today, on the shrines of houses, shops and offices throughout Isan, a photograph of Luang Bu Man can commonly be seen in a place of honor just below that of the Buddha himself. The most common of these photographs reveals a slight figure dressed in the somber robes of the forest monk, standing with an almost ghost-like stillness amongst unearthly trees, his hands clasped in front of him, radiating an austere composure. He seems to be looking right through the camera and straight into the viewer's heart. It's an inspiring but discomfiting picture. It challenges all that the viewer takes for granted. The stories and anecdotes featuring Lung Bu Man, related by his students and contemporaries, are startlingly reminiscent of the accounts of great monks found in the Buddhist scriptures. Although a certain amount of hyperbole may be expected from such sources, the comparisons are not fanciful. Lung Bu Man was an exemplary forest monk who was so devoted to the ascetic, peripatetic way of life that for a period of over 50 years he did not spend two consecutive rains retreats in the same monastery. It was only at the very end of his life, when he could no longer walk, that he gave up his daily arms round. His psychic powers were by all accounts stupendous and the sharpness and penetration of his reflective powers breathtaking. For many Thai Buddhists, 
Lungpu Mun represents an utterly convincing proof that enlightenment exists and is attainable in this day and age. Forest monks have never been absent from Thailand, but before Lungpu Mun, they were usually scattered in small, isolated communities that possessed little sense of being part of a wider tradition. These sanghas tended to be centered around a charismatic teacher and rarely lasted long after his death. There are no records to tell us how many such groups have assembled and dispersed in the last 700 years. We will never know how many enlightened beings have come and gone. In the words of the Buddha himself, like birds crossing the sky, they leave no tracks. Lungpu Man, however, lived at the beginning of a more informed and connected age. Accounts of his practice and teachings have been recorded in a large number of books. Many fine training monasteries, which attract visitors and pilgrims from all over the country, have been established by his disciples throughout Isan. He may be an unfathomable figure to many, but he is not obscure in the way that great monks of an earlier generation will always remain. The high standards maintained by the monks of his lineage and the integrity and prowess of his greatest disciples have ensured that today there is a respect for forest monks that has not existed in the country since the Sukhothai Thai period. It would be no exaggeration to say that the Thai forest tradition as we know it was established almost single-handedly by Lung Bu Man. During most of his lifetime, however, Lung Bu Man was relatively unknown. Throughout his monastic life, he shunned fame and status as a pestilent disease. In 1928, while staying at Wat Jedi Luang, one of the oldest and most prestigious monasteries in Chiang Mai, he received a letter from the powers that be in Bangkok, informing him of his appointment as the monastery's new abbot. Before long, he had gathered his possessions and disappeared into the mountains. It was another eleven years before he was seen in the city again. Lungpu Mun could be a fierce and exacting teacher. One of his famous scoldings would, in a senior disciple's memorable phrase, shrivel your liver but he inspired a quiet and intense devotion from those around him. One layman, whose life had been transformed by his contact with Lung Bu Man, was then living at Khao Wongkot, and it was he who first spoke of the great master to Lung Po. Apparently, Lung Bu Man had finally returned to Isan after so many years of solitary wandering in the north of the country and a large group of monks had gathered around him in the Pupan Mountains of northern Isan. Monks of the Mahanikai lineage were also receiving teachings. Luang Po's plans for the cold season began to take shape. At the end of the retreat, Luang Po, together with three other monks, a novice and two laymen, set off on the long walk back to Isan. They broke their journey at Bangkok and, after a few days' rest, began the 240-kilometre hike northwards. By the tenth day, they had reached the elegant white stupa of Thadpanom, a revered pilgrimage spot on the banks of the Mekong, and they paid homage to the Buddha's relics enshrined within it. They continued their walk in stages, regularly finding forest monasteries along the way in which to spend the night. 
Even so, it was an arduous trek, and the novice and one of the laymen asked to turn back. The group consisted of just three monks and a layman when they finally arrived at Wat Ba Nong Pu, the home of Luang Pu Man. As they walked into the monastery, Luang Pu was immediately struck by its tranquil and secluded atmosphere. The central area, in which stood a small raised wooden dhamma hall, was immaculately swept, and the few monks they caught sight of were attending to their daily chores silently with a measured and composed gracefulness. There was something about the monastery that was like no other that he had been in before. The silence was strangely charged and vibrant. Luang Po and his companions were received politely, and after being advised where to put up their glots, took a welcome opportunity to bathe away the grime of the road. Luang Po was never to speak in any great detail, about this first meeting, which was to have such a monumental effect on his life. But for monks who have lived in the forest monasteries of Isan, it is a scene easy to imagine. The three young monks may be pictured, with their double-layered outer robes folded neatly over their left shoulder, minds fluctuating between keen anticipation and cold fear making their way through the gathering dusk to the wooden dhamma hall to pay respects to Luang Bu Man. As he approaches the congregation of resident monks, Luang Po starts to crawl on his knees towards the great master. He approaches a slight, an aged figure with an indomitable diamond-like presence. Luang Bu Man's deeply penetrating gaze bears into Luang Po, as he bows three times and sits down at an appropriate distance. Most of the resident monks are sitting with eyes closed in meditation, one slightly behind the teacher, slowly fanning away the evening's mosquitoes. As Lung Po glances up, he notices how prominently Lung Bu Man's collarbone juts through the pale skin above his robe, and how his thin mouth, stained red from chewing betel nut, forms such an arresting contrast to the strange luminosity of his presence. As is the time-honoured custom amongst Buddhist monks, Lung Bu Man first asks the visitors how long they have been in robes, the monasteries they have practised in, and the details of their journey. Did they have any doubts about the practice? Lung Po replies that he does. It is at this point that he was later to take up the story himself. He said that he had been studying the Vinaya texts with great enthusiasm, but had become discouraged. The discipline seemed too detailed to be practical. It didn't seem possible to keep every single rule. What should one's standard be? Lung Bu Man listened in silence. Then he gave simple but practical advice. He advised Luang Po to take the two guardians of the world, wise shame, in Pali Hiri, and wise fear of the consequences, Huttapa, as his basic principles. In the presence of these two virtues, he said, everything else would follow. He then began to discourse on the threefold training of Sila, Samadhi and Banya, the four roads to success and the five spiritual powers. Eyes half-closed, his voice became progressively stronger and faster as he proceeded, as if he was moving into a higher and higher gear. 
with absolute authority, he described the way things truly are and the path to liberation. Lung Po and his companions sat completely enwrapped. Lung Po said that although he had spent an exhausting day on the road, listening to Lung Bu Man's Dhamma talk made all of his weariness disappear. His mind became lucidly calm and clear, and he felt as if he was floating in the air above his seat. It was late at night before Lung Bu Man called the meeting to an end, and Lung Po returned to his glot aglow. The usual translation of the Thai word Sungop is peace, and this is correct in most contexts. But when dealing with the practice of meditation, Lung Po uses the word Sungop in ways that can sometimes make this translation problematic. For this reason, in the meditation context, it has sometimes been rendered with the unorthodox translation lucid calm. On the second night, Luang Bu Man gave more teachings, and Luang Po felt that he had come to the end of his doubts about the practice that lay ahead. He felt a joy and rapture in the Dhamma that he had never known before. Now what remained was for him to put his knowledge into practice. Indeed, one of the teachings that had inspired him the most on those two evenings was this injunction to make himself a witness to the truth. But the most clarifying explanation, one that gave him the necessary context or basis for practice that he had hitherto been lacking, was of a distinction between the mind itself and transient states of mind which arose and passed away within it. Lung Bu Man said they're merely states. Through not understanding that point, we take them to be real, to be the mind itself. In fact, they're all just transient states. As soon as he said that, things suddenly became clear. Suppose there's happiness present in the mind. It's a different kind of thing. It's on a different level to the mind itself. If you see that, then you can stop. You can put things down. When conventional realities are seen for what they are, then it's ultimate truth. Most people lump everything together as the mind itself, but actually there are states of mind together with the knowing of them. If you understand that point, then there's not a lot to do. On the third day, Lung Po paid his respects to Lung Bu Man and led his small group off into the lonely forests of Pupan once more. He left Nong Pu and never to return again, but with his heart full of an inspiration that would stay with him for the rest of his life. Orders of the Day A Short Historical Background Fragmentation of the Sangha into a number of different orders has been a notable feature of Sri Lankan and Burmese Buddhism. In Thailand, however, the creation of new orders has been extremely rare. This anomaly is explained to a large extent by the fact that it is only in Thailand that the Sangha has enjoyed strong and uninterrupted royal support throughout its existence and has been spared the stresses of living under an unsympathetic colonial administration. The Thai abhorrence of conflict and lack of enthusiasm for doctrinal niceties have also played their part. 
For the last 160 years, there have been two orders in Thailand, the Mahanikaya and the Dhammayut Nikaya. The word Nikaya is most commonly rendered as sect, but that term tends to suggest, misleadingly, doctrinal disputes. Nikayas do not, in fact, differ in matters of belief or interpretation of the teachings, but rather to the practical application of the Vinaya. In other words, it is on questions of orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy that they define themselves. The Dhammayut, which means literally bound with the Dhamma or righteous Nikaya, is the more recent. It was established by King Mongkut in the 1830s, during the period he spent in the monkhood prior to ascending the throne. His intention was that it should provide an elite group of monks that would act as a regenerative force within the Maha, the great or greater Nikaya. The monastic order of the time was certainly in a parlour state. The destruction of the kingdom of Ayutthaya in 1767 and the period of anarchy that followed it had dealt a crushing blow to the organization of an already corrupt system. Despite the repeated efforts at reform from the beginning of the Bangkok era in the late 18th century, standards of discipline were still very lax, and educational standards at Anadia. King Mongkut had become a monk during the final illness of his father, King Buddha Lertlai Napalai, when, despite his own superior claim to the throne, he was overlooked by the Privy Council in favour of his half-brother, he decided to pursue a monastic career until the day, if ever, when he might be called to secular power. He soon became deeply disillusioned by what he found around him in the monasteries of Bangkok and, with a few like-minded followers, determined to re-establish what he saw as ancient standards that had been abandoned. His aim was a familiarly Protestant one, to bring contemporary practices back in line with the teachings in the Buddhist scriptures. He supported a more rational, scientific approach to the Dhamma, with an eradication of superstitions, an increased study of the Pali texts, a new, more correct way of chanting, changes in ritual and in the wearing of the robes, and, most importantly, a new strictness in adherence to the Vinaya. Although the number of Dhammayut monks was relatively small, it has never exceeded a tenth of the Sangha as a whole. The lineage's close links to the royal family ensured that within a short time it possessed formidable prestige, influence and resources. King Jula Longon, King Mongkut's son and successor, appointed Dhammayut monks to the top administrative positions in the monkhood throughout the country, using them both as agents of reform in the Sangha nationwide and also politically, as an important tool in what has been referred to as Bangkok's colonization of the provinces. Unsurprisingly, since this new order was established as a specific response to the alleged corruption of the old, thus usurping much of its prestige, it provoked widespread resentment. Although overt conflict between the two orders was rare, room for serious discord was not hard to find. The reformers' view of the existing Sangha was a demeaning one. They held that a significant number of monks had, over the years, committed unconfessed expulsion offences. Consequently, as every ordination ceremony in which those illegitimate monks had participated as members of the quorum 
were automatically rendered null and void, the existing lineage was irredeemably corrupt. Serious doubts had to be entertained as to whether any of the members of the Mahanikai were, technically speaking, monks at all. The Dhammayut movement began with King Mongkut requesting ordination afresh. On this second occasion, from a quorum of Mon monks, who he believed to be pure in Vinaya. This action set an important precedent. The new order was to define and legitimize itself by the asserted ritual correctness of its members' formal entrance into the monkhood. Critics might argue that there could be as little proof that the Mon lineage was historically pure as there was that the Mahanikai lineage was not. They might assert that reform from within would be more in line with the Vinaya and less threatening to the long-term harmony of the Sangha than the creation of a new order. But such voices were few, and the Dhammayut order went from strength to strength. Ubon was chosen by King Mungkut as the centre for the propagation of the new order in Isan, and he sponsored the construction of Wat Supatthanaram on the banks of the Moon River close to the city to act as its main base. During the second half of the 19th century, as Ubon became renowned for scholastic excellence, many other Dhammayut monasteries were built in and around the city, and monks trained in Ubon spread the reforms into other areas of Isan. In 1892, when Man Gang Gao, a native of Kongjiam district, decided to become a monk, he chose to request ordination at one of Ubon's Dhammayut monasteries, Wat Si Tong now known as Wat Si Ubon. Shortly afterwards, he moved to Wat Liap on the outskirts of the town to study under the well-known meditation teacher Lung Bu Sao. It would turn out to be a momentous step, as the Lung Bu Man lineage that eventually developed would be primarily a Dhammayut lineage. If for no reason other than deference to the Dhammayut authorities, Lung Bu Man had no choice but to take the question of lineage seriously. Over the years, almost all of his disciples, most of whom had originally entered the monkhood in one of the far more numerous Mahanikaiwats, abandoned their old affiliation in order to be formally admitted into the Dhammayut order. The monks valued the opportunity to put behind them a way of living the monk's life they now rejected and to formally express their commitment to their teacher. By the early 1920s, the group of Lung Bu Man's disciples was growing rapidly and having a galvanizing effect on Isan. Although primarily committed to living in lonely places in accordance with the traditional norms of the forest monk, they were not indifferent to the society they had renounced and which now supported them. In groups of two or three, they would go on long treks through the countryside combining periods devoted to their own meditation practice with preaching to the laity. Their stress on the abandonment of the superstitious animist beliefs that had in many places smothered a supposedly dominant Buddhism and taking refuge in the triple gem sometimes took on the nature of a crusade. Lung Po Li, one of the most energetic and articulate of Lung Bu Man's great disciples, related one such effort in his own village in northern Ubon. Once a year, when the season came around, each household would have to sacrifice a chicken 
a duck or a pig. Altogether, this meant that in one year, hundreds of living creatures had to die for the sake of spirits, because there would also be times when people would make sacrifices to cure an illness in the family. All of this struck me as a senseless waste. If the spirits really did exist, that's not the type of food they would eat. It would be far better to make merit and dedicate it to the spirits. If they didn't accept that, then drive them away with the authority of the Dhamma. So I ordered the people to burn all the village shrines. When some of the villagers began to lose nerve, for fear that there would be nothing to protect them in the future, I wrote down the chant for spreading goodwill and gave a copy to everyone in the village, guaranteeing that nothing would happen. I've since learnt that all the area around the ancestral shrines is now planted with crops, and that the spot where the spirits were said to be fierce is now a new village. Although Lung Bu Man and many of his closest disciples were natives of Ubon, at that time by far the largest of the Isan provinces, his lineage was to flourish further north. The reasons for this were largely a function of Sangha politics. The Dhammayut order had begun its life as an essentially urban scholastic movement. From its inception, its upper echelons had tended to distrust forest monks as contributing to the perpetuation of the irrational, unorthodox currents in the Sangha that they were trying to eradicate. To them, forest monks were ignorant of the Pali texts, did not keep the Vinaya strictly, and were mavericks outside of the control of the larger Sangha. This may have been true of the forest monks in central Thailand in the mid-19th century, but it failed to recognize the unique features of the Lung Man group, in particular their devotion to Vinaya training, which in many ways exceeded that of the monks who criticized them. Praporti Wangsachan was the head of the Sangha in Isan and based in Ubon. He was one of the leading figures in 20th century Thai Buddhism. His given name was Uwan, his monk's name Tiso, and his final title Somdet Maha Virawong. He became the first Sangha Nayaka, or head of the Thai Sangha, after government-initiated reforms in the 1930s. He was a steadfast opponent of the Lungpuman group. He saw them as poorly educated fanatics, who stirred up trouble with the local village monks wherever they went. He made life as difficult for them as he could whenever they came to Ubon. On one notorious occasion, he requested the local authorities in Huatapan district to drive them out of the province. Consequently, the Lungpu Man monks spent most of their time in the more remote parts of northern Isan. The situation changed somewhat in the late 1920s due to the influence in Bangkok of Jaokun Upali, the famous administrator and scholar. As a childhood friend of Lung Bu Man and as friend and colleague to Praporthiwang Sajjan, he was able to mediate between them. Praporthiwang Sajjan overcame his prejudice and later went on to become a devoted supporter of Lung Bu Man and his disciples. But by that time, the die was cast. Lung Bu Man was on his sojourn in Chiang Mai, and his disciples were forging ties to lonely areas of Isan, hundreds of kilometers away from Ubon. Lung Po Cha's visit to Lung Bu Man 
was then not simply that of a young Tudong monk to the father of the Thai forest tradition, but also that of a Mahanikai monk to a Dhammayut monastery. During his brief visit, some of the younger resident monks urged Lung Po to switch to the Dhammayut order as they had done, but he remained unmoved. Most probably, he considered a change of affiliation to be ungrateful or disloyal. Lung Po himself never revealed his thoughts on the matter. What is known is that one of the questions that he asked Lung Pu Man during his visit was this central one of reordination. Was it necessary for one intent on realization of the Dhamma? Lung Pu Man put his mind at rest. No, it was not. It has been recorded that prior to Lung Po's visit, one of Lung Pu Man's senior disciples had a meditative vision in which he saw Ubon split off from the rest of Ishan. Lung Pu Man apparently considered this a sign that Ubon would not be a stronghold for the Dhammayut forest monks in the future. It is said that he recognized in Lung Pu Cha the one who had introduced the forest tradition into the Mahanikai order and established monasteries in Ubon. After only three days, Lung Pu left Nong Pu and, as far as is known, did not return. Lung Pu Man himself passed away in 1949. Despite such a short time in his presence, Lung Po Cha has long been numbered amongst the great disciples of Lung Pu Man. There is some room for doubt on this point. Can two nights of instruction, without any formal declaration of a teacher-student relationship, really count as basis for discipleship? When asked why he stayed with Lung Pu Man for such a short time, Lung Po replied that a person with his eyes closed could spend years close to a fire and still not see it, whereas someone with good eyes would take little time at all. If that statement reflects how Lung Po felt at the time, it indicates an unusual self-confidence for one so relatively inexperienced in practice. He appears to be implying that he received from Lung Pu Man something which, in other Buddhist traditions, might be described as a transmission. Whereas it's true that transmission is not an idea widely found in Theravada Buddhism, it certainly seems that following this meeting, Lung Po felt his path had been illumined. It is as if, to use another analogy, Lung Po felt that he had been given a clear outline of the work to be done and the tools to do it and all that remained was for him to apply himself to the task. Although he did not feel it necessary to maintain a close proximity to the teacher, he expressed the conviction throughout his life that whatever success he achieved in his practice was the outcome of the short visit to Nong Pu. He considered Lung Bu Man his teacher, and he was always true to the instructions that he received directly from him. In later years, the physical distance between Wat Pa Pong and the Dhammayut forest monasteries in northern Isan, compounded by the difference in Nikaya, meant that Lung Po had infrequent contact with other disciples of Lung Pu Man. One advantage of the separation was the freedom it gave him to establish his own style of teaching without having to worry that any deviation from Lung Pu Man's way of doing things would be taken as disrespect to the teacher. As will be seen, the way of practice at Wat Bapong gave a unique importance to group rather than individual practice. 
it may be considered one of Lung Po's distinctive contributions to the tradition. Lung Po led his companions along the quiet paths that threaded through the Pupan Mountains with a newfound confidence. The immediate result of his meeting with Lung Bu Man manifested as an unshakable determination to realize directly in his heart the truths that had been so lucidly expounded by the great master. Years later, as the leader of a community of monks, he would often stress that the monk intent on truth must, without melodrama or posturing of any kind, be ready to put his life on the line. This was the frame of mind that accompanied him as he walked out of Wat Ba Nongpu into the forests and mountains of northern Isan. Kindness of the Teacher The Buddha taught monks to constantly recollect the fragility of life and the ever-present threat of death, to spend every moment well and take nothing for granted. At night, monks are encouraged to reflect on all the various ways they might die before the following dawn. Snake bites, scorpion bites, an awkward fall, appendicitis, the list is soberingly long. Dwelling in tropical forests, where their insecurity is palpable and virtually impossible to forget, is particularly conducive to this kind of contemplation. One night, in a thick forest in the Konpanom, a roving pack of wild dogs caught the scent of Long Po as he sat meditating in his glot. The motionless form of a cross-legged monk must have been a strange and unsettling sight to them. Within a few moments, Long Po was jerked from mindfulness of his breath to the awareness of a snarling mass of angry creatures with a mosquito net his only protection. Fear coursed through his body, and with a supreme effort, Lung Po steadied his mind. Following the ancient tradition, he made a solemn resolution. I did not come here to hurt anyone or anything. I have come to practice Dhamma, in order to realize liberation from suffering. If I have ever oppressed you in a past life, then kill me, so that I may pay off my debt. But if there is no bad blood between us, then please leave me in peace. Lung Po closed his eyes. The wild dogs circled his glot, howling fiercely and racing in to lunge at him from all sides, only to be confused by the thin cotton net that enclosed him. As soon as one of them dared to bite through it and expose the net's flimsiness, Lung Po knew it would be the end, and he became afraid once more. Then, suddenly out of the thick blackness of the night, Lung Bu Man appeared, holding aloft a blazing torch and walking straight towards the wild dogs. Halting at the side of Lung Po's glot, he scolded them sharply, Go! Leave him alone! He lifted a length of wood as if to strike them, and the wild dogs, stunned and thrown into disarray, ran off. Lung Po, relieved and grateful to Lung Bu Man for saving him, opened his eyes to a scene of complete darkness and silence. The next morning Lung Po set off down the trail, with a heightened sense of the connection he felt to Lung Bu Man. Together with the postulant Gao, his only remaining companion, 
he was soon to need every ounce of mental strength he possessed to face his most testing examination so far. In the Cremation Forest For thousands of years, the Thais have perceived themselves living in a universe inhabited by unseen forces, malevolent and benign. It is unusual to discover a blind belief in the non-existence of ghosts, even amongst the most materialist of modern urban dwellers. Fascination with ghost stories is almost universal. Although secular values have spread relentlessly throughout Thai society, there is no sign of them displacing the deep belief in spirits. Many different kinds of ghosts are spoken of in Thailand. The three kinds that can possess people are particularly feared. Pi Tai Hong, victims of a violent death. Pi Tai Thong Klom, women who died during childbirth. And Pi Bok, who, greedy for raw meat and offal, enter people's bodies and chew away voraciously at their intestines. Pi Bred, which comes from the Pali Beta, meanwhile, are the hungry ghosts met with in the Buddhist texts. They are horrifyingly ugly, gaunt and emaciated, with dishevelled hair, long necks, sunken cheeks, deep-set eyes. They feed on pus and blood, and have huge bellies as well as tiny mouths, no bigger than the eye of a needle. Their appetite is never satisfied. They dwell in cremation forests and desolate areas, and emit long, shrill and plaintive cries as they approach human beings. In the time and place in which Luang Po grew up, Isan of the 1920s and 1930s, fear of ghosts was normal and rational. They were all around. While the modern Western mind is not so terrified of ghosts, it has its own profound fears. In George Orwell's novel 1984, prisoners under interrogation are confronted with the deepest and most visceral of these in the dreaded Room 101. The following passage might be best appreciated if it's considered that the cremation forest was Luang Po's room 101 and that he entered it of his own accord. It was late afternoon and I was really afraid. I didn't want to go. I was paralysed. I told myself to go, but I couldn't. I invited Postulant Gao to accompany me. Go and die there, I told myself. If it's time to die... Go and get it over and done with. If it's all such a burden, if you're so stupid, just die. That's the kind of thing I was saying to myself, even though at the same time I still didn't really want to go. But I forced myself. If you're going to wait until you're completely ready, you'll never go, I reasoned. And you won't ever tame your mind. In the end, I had to drag myself there. As I got to the edge of the forest, I faltered. I had never stayed in a cremation forest before in my life. Postulant Gao was going to stick close, but I wouldn't have it. I sent him off a good distance away. Actually, I wanted him to stay really close, but I was worried that I'd become dependent on him. I thought if I had a friend close by, then I wouldn't be afraid, and so I resisted the temptation and sent him away. If I'm so frightened, then tonight let me die. Let's see what happens. I was afraid, but I did it. 
It's not that I wasn't afraid, but I dared. At the worst, I told myself, all that can happen is that you'll die. Well, as the dusk started to thicken a little, just my luck, they carried a corpse swaying from side to side into the cremation forest. Why should this happen on this very day? As I practiced walking meditation, pacing backwards and forwards, I could hardly feel my feet touch the ground. Get out of here, my mind screamed. The villagers invited me to go and chant the funeral verses. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. Get out of here, I was still thinking. But after I'd gone a short distance, I returned. They came and buried the corpse right by my glot, and then made a sitting platform for me from the bamboo they'd used to carry the body. What should I do now? The village was two or three kilometers away. This is it for sure. What shall I do? Just get ready to die. Postulant Gao moved closer. I sent him away and told myself, just go ahead and die. Why are you so terrified? Now we're going to have some fun with this. If you don't dare do it, you won't know what it's like. Oh, it was such an intense feeling. It hardly seemed as if my feet were touching the ground, and it was getting darker and darker. Where are you going to go now? Go right into the middle of the cremation forest. Die! You were born, and then you die. Isn't that the way it goes? I battled with myself like that. After the sun had gone down, I felt I should get into my clot. My legs were refusing to move. My feelings urged me into the clot. I'd been practicing walking meditation in front of it, opposite the grave. As I walked towards the clot, it wasn't so bad. But as soon as I turned towards the grave, I don't know what it was. It was as if there was something pulling at my back. Cold shivers went down my spine. That's what the training is all about. You feel so frightened your legs refuse to walk, and so you stop. Then, when the fear has gone, you start again. So, as it got dark, I entered my glot, and a wave of relief swept over me. I felt as happy and secure as if the mosquito net was a seven-tiered wall. My arms bowl seemed like an old friend. That's what can happen when you're on your own. You can even see a bowl as your friend. I had no one to rely on, and so I felt happy and took comfort in its presence. It's on occasions like this that you really see your mind. I sat in my glot and watched for malevolent spirits right throughout the night. I never slept a wink. I was afraid. Afraid but daring to train myself, daring to do it. I sat staring into the darkness the whole night. I wasn't sleepy once. Drowsiness was afraid to show its face as well. I just sat there like that the whole night. In practice, if you're that scared, and you just follow your mind, you'd never do it. It's the same with everything. If you don't do it, if you don't practice, you don't get any benefit. I practiced. As the dawn broke, I was overjoyed. I was still alive. I felt so happy. 
From now on, I just wanted there to be only the day. In my heart, I wanted to kill the night forever. It felt good. I hadn't died after all. Even the dogs were out to test me. I went on arms round alone, and some dogs chased along behind me and tried to bite my legs. I didn't chase them away, let them bite. It seemed that something was out to get me. They kept snapping away at my ankles. Some bites got home, some didn't. I felt shooting pains, and every now and again it seemed as if a wound had been opened up. The village women didn't try to get hold of their dogs. They thought spirits had followed me into the village, and that's why the dogs were barking. They were chasing after spirits and biting them, not me, so they just left them to it. I didn't drive the dogs off, just let them bite me. Last night I was almost frightened to death, and now I'm being attacked by dogs. Let them bite me if I've ever hurt them in past lives but they just snapped away ineffectually. That's what's called training yourself. After arms round, I ate my meal and started to feel better. The sun came out and I felt warm and at ease. During the day I had a rest, and by then my mind was getting back to normal. I thought everything was all right, it was only fear. Tonight I should be able to get down to some meditation practice. I've been through the fear. Tonight, it should be fine. Late afternoon, and here we go again. They carried in another corpse, an adult. It was even worse than the previous night. They were going to cremate it right in front of my clot. This was much worse. At least the villagers burnt the body, but when they invited me to go and contemplate the corpse, I stayed where I was. Only when all the villagers had left did I go. They've all gone home and left me alone with the corpse. What shall I do? I don't know what similes I could use to describe to you this fear, and in the night time too. The fire had burnt right down. The embers were red, green, blue. They spluttered and every now and then broke into flame. I couldn't bring myself to practice walking meditation in front of the fire. As soon as it was completely dark, I got into my glot as I'd done the night before. I sat in the thick forest with the smell of the corpse-burning smoke in my nostrils the whole night. It was worse than the night before. I sat with my back to the fire with no idea of sleeping. How could I sleep? I didn't have the slightest desire to. I was nervous and wide awake the entire night. I was afraid and I didn't know who I could depend on. You're here by yourself, and you'll have to rely on yourself. There's nowhere to go. It's pitch black out there. Just sit down and die. Where do you want to go anyway? If you were to just follow what your mind told you, you'd never go to a place like that. Who would willingly put themselves through such torment? Only someone with a firm conviction in the Buddha's teachings of the fruits of practice. It was about ten o'clock, and I was sitting with my back to the fire. Suddenly, I heard a sound from behind me. I thought that maybe the corpse had rolled off the fire, and perhaps some jackals had come to fight over it, or something. But no, 
It wasn't that. I sat listening. Then came the sound. Like someone moving ponderously through the forest. I tried to dismiss it from my mind. Shortly afterwards, it began to walk towards me. I could hear the sound of somebody approaching me from behind. The footfalls were heavy, almost like a water buffalo's, but it wasn't a water buffalo. Fallen leaves thickly covered the forest floor. It was February, and I heard the sound of someone treading on the big, brittle leaves. There was a termite mound at the side of my glot. I heard the steps skirting it as they approached. I thought, whatever it's going to do, let it, because you're ready to die. Where do you think you'd run to anyway? But in the end, it didn't come towards me. The sounds thudded off ahead in the direction of the postulant. After it moved away, there was silence. I don't know what it was. All I was aware of was the fear that made me imagine all kinds of things. It must have been about half an hour later that I heard the sound of someone walking back from the direction of postulant Gao. It was exactly like the sound of a human being. It came straight towards the clot, as if it was determined to trample whoever was inside. I just sat there with my eyes closed. I wasn't going to open them for anything. If I was going to die, then let me die right there. When it reached me, it stopped and stood silent and motionless in front of the clot. I felt as if burnt hands were clutching at the air in front of me. I was sure the end had come. My whole body was petrified with terror. I forgot putto, tammo, sangho, everything. All that existed was the fear. I was stretched and tight as a monastery drum. All right, you're there, but I'm staying here. My mind was numb. I didn't know if I was sitting on a seat or floating in the air. I tried to concentrate on the sense of knowing. It's probably like tipping water into a jar. If you just keep adding more and more, then eventually it overflows. I was so frightened, and the fear kept increasing until finally it overflowed. There was a release. I asked myself, what are you afraid of? Why are you so terrified? I didn't actually say that. The question arose spontaneously in my mind, and the answer arose in response. I'm afraid of death. That's what it said, so I asked further. Where is death? Why are you so more afraid than an ordinary householder? I kept asking where death was, until finally I got the answer. Death lies within us. If that's the case, then where can you run to escape from it? If you run away, it will run with you. If you sit down, it will sit with you. If you get up and walk off, it will walk with you because death lies within us. There's nowhere to go. Whether you're afraid or not makes no difference. You still have to die. There's no escape. These reflections cut off my thoughts. When this dialogue had come to an end, familiar perceptions returned to the surface of my mind, and the fear subsided. 
the change was as simple and total as when you flip your hand over from its back to the palm. I felt a great amazement that such fearlessness could arise right in the very same place that there had been such a strong fear just a few moments before. My heart soared to the heavens. With the overcoming of my fear, it started to pour with rain. Maybe it was that rain that falls on lotus leaves in the legend, the one that only makes you wet if you let it, I don't know. There was the sound of thunder, of wind and of rain, deafeningly loud. It rained so heavily, all my fears of death were forgotten. Trees crashed down, and I was impervious. My robes, every piece of cloth I had, was soaked. I just sat there, quite still. Then, after a while, I started to weep. It just happened by itself. Tears started to roll down my face. Before that, I'd been thinking how like an orphan I was, sitting there shivering in the middle of the pouring rain. I thought that probably none of the people happily asleep in their houses would imagine that there was a monk sitting out here in the rain all night. They were probably snuggling up in their warm blankets. And here I am, sitting here, soaked to the skin. What's it all about? As I started dwelling on these thoughts, a sense of the sorrowfulness of my life arose, and I began to cry. The tears were streaming down. That's all right. It's bad stuff. Let it all run out until there's nothing left. That's what the practice is. I don't know how to explain what happened after that. Following my victory, I just sat there and all these things took place in my mind. It would be impossible to describe them all. I came to know and see so many things, too many to relate. It reminded me of the Buddha's words, to be seen by each person by themselves. That was really true. I was suffering out in the middle of the rain, and who could know how I felt? Nobody, only me. I was so deeply afraid, and then the fear disappeared. The people in their warm, dry houses couldn't know what that was like. Only I could know that, because it's Pachatang. Who could I tell? Who could I relate it to? The more I reflected on it, the more certain I became, and the more my heart was filled with energy and faith in the teachings. I contemplated the Dhamma until dawn. As it became light, I opened my eyes, and whichever way I looked, the whole world was yellow. The danger had gone. During the night, I'd felt the need to urinate, but I'd been too afraid to get up. I'd held it back, and after some time the urge passed. In the morning when I got up, the whole world looked as yellow as the early morning sunlight. I went to urinate, and all that came out was blood. I wondered whether something inside me had torn or broken. I became afraid that something must have ruptured, and then I was confronted by an immediate retort. If it's ruptured, then it's nobody's fault. It's just the way things are. It was an immediate and spontaneous answer to the worry. If it's ruptured, it's ruptured. If you're going to die, you're going to die. 
You've just been sitting there minding your own business. If it wants to rupture, let it. The mind carried on this dialogue. It was like two people struggling for possession of something, one pulling it one way and the other pulling it back again. One part of my mind elbowed its way in, saying there was a serious problem. Another part fought with it immediately. As I urinated, the blood came out in gobs. I started to wonder where I could find some medicine. Don't bother. Where would you go anyway? You're a monk. You can't dig up medicinal roots. If it's time to die, then just die. What can you do about it? Dying while practicing the teachings is noble. You should be satisfied to die. If you were going to die for the sake of something evil, that wouldn't be worth it. But if you die like this, it's fitting. All right, I said to myself, so be it. That morning, Lung Po went on arms round, shaking with a fever that he bore patiently for a week before deciding to ask permission to convalesce at a nearby monastery. Ten days later, he had recovered sufficiently to continue his wandering. By this time of the year, the nights would not have been so cold, and the day's heat stronger. Soon the hot season would glue the world together into a dense, smothering blanket, penetrated only by an occasional sweet and cooling breeze. As he made his way eastwards, the streams in which Lung Po bathed, and from which he took his drinking water, would have been diminishing rapidly. The paddy fields surrounding the occasional hamlets would be becoming hard as rock, cracking beneath a heat haze, while water buffaloes soaking in muddy pools of water would be making the most of them before they disappeared. At the edges of hamlets, he would have seen women searching in the woods for edible roots and leaves to supplement their meagre hot-season diet. In the thickly forested valleys of Nakonpanom, the huge hardwood trees, Yang, Bradu and Dang, stood like grave but kindly sentinels on the path. As he walked, he would have heard the sound of hornbills swooping above his head, or perhaps seen flocks of bright green parrots sweeping and weaving through the forest in perfect formation. Eventually, he arrived at his goal, Wat Ba Ba Nong Hi, also known as Wat Ba Meta Vivek, the monastery of Lung Bu Ginnery, one of the few Tudong monks in the Mahanikai order. It was to be the beginning of a long and fruitful association. Exemplars Lung Po was always a very self-reliant monk. He rarely sought teachings from other monks, and when he did so, seldom asked questions, preferring to listen and observe. Lung Po Ginnery was probably the closest that anybody came to being a mentor to Lung Po in the conventional sense of that term. He was not a monk with an immediate charisma, and his reclusiveness meant that he was little known in the Tudong fraternity. But Lung Po said that the longer he lived with Lung Po Ginnery, the more his respect for him grew. He spoke admiringly of Lung Po Ginnery's devotion to the Vinaya, his simplicity, his ability to maintain mindfulness in all postures, and his patient attention to detail. Although he usually seemed very low-key and relaxed about his practice, there were also periods when Lumpur Ginnery would practice walking meditation for many hours at a stretch and live on well water for days on end. 
Longpo Ginnery had led an eventful monastic life. After receiving teachings from Longpo Man and Longpo Sao, he had spent many years wandering on Tudong, including over ten years in Burma. He had endured many hardships on the way, and more than once had come close to death. He was only one of a handful of Thai monks of his generation to have visited the Buddhist holy sites in northeast India. And yet, even at the time Lung Po came to know him, Lung Po Ginnery did not give the impression of being a hard and seasoned traveller. Rather, he wore about him like an old, well-used robe, a modest self-sufficiency and ease that spoke of someone who felt he had nothing more to prove. He was a sweet, gentle man, who seemed content with whatever each moment might bring him. He rarely spoke. It seemed he found few things so worth saying as to merit disturbing the silence. He was an industrious man who would spend his days tinkering, pottering, sewing, cleaning. All of his requisites he made himself, and he used them until they fell apart. As he got older, his appearance was even more shabby and decrepit, but, as Lung Po discovered, looks were deceptive. Lung Po Ginnery's mind was bright and clear. After a short initial visit, Lung Po continued his wandering and then came back to Nong He to spend the rains retreat. He relates the kind of teaching that inspired him to return. At that time, I'd heard teachers giving Dhamma talks about letting go, letting go, and I still couldn't make much of it. Lungpu Ginnery asked me to sew a set of robes. I went at it flat out. I wanted to get it over and done with quickly. I thought once the task was done, I'd be free of business and be able to get down to some meditation. One day, Lungpu walked over. I was sewing out in the sun, totally unaware of the heat. I just wanted to get finished so that I could devote myself to meditation. He asked me what the hurry was. I told him that I wanted to get finished. When he asked me why, I told him that I wanted to practice meditation. Then he asked me what would I do after I'd finished meditating. When I told him, he asked me what would I do after that. I realized that there would be no end to this line of questioning. Then he said, don't you realize that it's just this sewing that's your meditation? Where are you rushing off to? You've already gone wrong. Craving is flooding your head and you've no idea that it's happening. Another shaft of light. I'd been sure I was making merit. I'd thought merely doing the job was good enough. I'd get it done quickly and go on to something else. But Lung Bu pointed out my mistake. What was the hurry? It was probably at this time that Lung Po would have first heard stories of Lung Bu Ginnery's mentor, Lung Bu Tong Rat, a monk whose colourful personality could not have been more different from Lung Bu Ginnery's, but who shared many of his most inspiring traits. Apart from Lung Bu Man himself and Lung Bu Ginnery, Lung Bu Tong Rat was the monk Lung Po would most often praise to his disciples in later years. His dedication to the Vinaya and the Tudong life the endurance, resolution, and sheer bloody-mindedness he showed in his practice, his love of solitude and simplicity, his blunt sense of humour, all these qualities inspired Lung Po.
Lungpu Tongrat was the acknowledged leader of the group of monks who looked to Lungpu Mun as their teacher, but retained their affiliation with the Mahanikai order. He was a great favorite of Lungpu Mun and was renowned for his utter lack of fear. One much repeated and perhaps apocryphal tale recounts how Lungpu Mun and a group of monks walking through the forest were surprised by a large wild pig. While other monks looked around instinctively for a way to escape, Lungpu Tongrat strode up to the pig and gave it a resounding kick, at which the shocked animal ran back into the forest. On another occasion, his eccentric behavior had been upsetting a number of villagers. Returning to his monastery for alms round one day, he discovered an anonymous, crudely abusive letter waiting for him. Rather than try to keep the matter quiet, he asked one of the monks to read the letter out loud for the whole sangha to hear. He then asked that the letter be put on the shrine. This, he said, was also dhamma, the worldly dhamma of criticism. Understanding worldly dhammas led to wisdom, and he wanted to pay his respects to this teacher. Lungpu Tongrat died in 1956, in a small monastery a few miles away from the newly established Watbapong. Upon his death, the only possession to be found in his shoulder bag was a razor for shaving his head. Details of the relationship between Lungpo Cha and Lungpu Tongrat are obscure. In fact, the only account of any exchange between them at all is contained in the well-known story of their first meeting. In it, Lungpo enters an unnamed monastery and is met by Lungpu Tongrat with the baffling words, Oh, Cha! So, you've arrived. Where and under what circumstances this event occurred, and whether it was the first of many meetings or a one-off encounter, are all unknown. All that can be asserted with any confidence is that Lung Po looked up to Lung Bu Tongrat with the highest respect. A Problem with Robes after Lung Po had abandoned the life of the wandering mendicant, he would often, in the course of Dhamma talks to the Sangha, refer to his early days of practice. In relating his experiences as a young monk, he would emphasize his own weaknesses and the problems he had faced with a self-deprecating humor and frankness. As a pedagogical device, it was particularly effective. Many senior monks later commented how encouraging it had been for them to know that their teacher had entered the very same apparently boundless quagmire that they themselves were struggling through and had come out on the other side. On one occasion, Lung Po recalled how, in his first year of Tudong, he experienced a great craving for requisites and suffered accordingly. When I entered the circle of forest monks, their requisites all seemed so beautiful. Their bowls were immaculate, and the color and texture of their robes looked so good. I didn't have a single piece of cloth that wasn't unsightly. I wanted a new upper robe, a jiwon. I still didn't have a two-layered outer robe, a sangati. I was full of discontent. The means by which a monk may acquire a new robe are strictly governed by the vinaya. If he is resident in a monastery, he may request cloth from the monastery stores and sew one himself. If he is travelling far from his home monastery, it's more problematic. Bangsukula 
or rag robes provide one option. These days the word bangsukula is familiar to most Thai lay Buddhists as the name given to robes formerly offered to monks during funeral rites. In fact, the ceremonial offering of bangsukula cloth harkens back to a custom from the time of the Buddha. Then it was common for people to hang the cloth used to cover corpses from trees in the charnel ground before cremating the bodies. Monks would gather the discarded cloth and then wash, cut, sew and dye it into robes. Monks who adopted this practice, much praised by the Buddha, were called rag-robe wearers. Any cloth discarded by its owner is called bangsukula. Conscious of his desire for beautiful robes, Lung Po determined that he would not act upon it in any way. He would make do with bangsukula cloth. This was not so easy to come by, but whatever difficulty was involved, he was determined to overcome his craving for fine requisites. He would make no effort to procure better robes. He would make no requests. He would only accept new robes if they were freely offered to him. The gradual changes taking place in his mind became apparent after he took leave of Lung Po Ginnery for another bout of Tudong. I went up to Si Song Kram district and Lung Po Put gave me an old robe that he had been wearing for four years. I was so happy. The border was all torn, but I managed to find a discarded bathing cloth to make a patch. The colour of the patch didn't fit. It looked like the border stripe on the skirts that the local women wore. When I went on arms round, everyone looked at me. They stared so much that I felt discouraged. It was a problem. I felt so self-conscious that I re-dyed the cloth. But no matter how much I tried, it was just too old to take the colour well. Prakru Jan had said to let him know if I needed any requisites, but I was determined not to ask for anything, so I just carried on like that, until at Jan Sawai, observing my patience and my way of practice, sewed me a robe. That made me feel good. If I'd asked for a robe from him at the start, I would have been uncomfortable about receiving it, because it would have been acquired through expressing my desires. My views had flipped over. Now I looked down on anything that had been purchased or ordered or asked for. But if I acquired something without seeking it, even if it was not in particularly good condition, as long as it was still repairable, it seemed wonderful. On that trip to Si Song Kram, I had one small angsa, I couldn't ask for another. Doing so would have been a transgression. I didn't know what to do. I wanted a new one. My mind was restless and agitated. I worried about robes so much that I worked out how to make an upper robe. I planned out step by step what I do with the cloth, even though there was no sign of a prospective donor. While I was practicing walking meditation, I'd be marking out the robe in my mind. Whenever I got some cloth, I thought, I'd be able to get down to work straight away. I was obsessed. On arms round, all I saw were the markings on the cloth. I went through it so often in my mind that I worked it out. I was as concentrated on that imaginary robe as if I was a flea or louse who'd made it its home. I'd never seen anyone make the two-layered outer robe before, but I worked that out as well. 
I was so interested, and I had such a strong desire that I gave it a lot of thought. I determined the method of sewing the robe, and of attaching the border every last detail until I could do it, until I could visualize it all very clearly. So, when I was eventually offered some cloth, I was able to start straight away. Why not? I was proficient. I was able to cut the cloth and make the upper robe, and as for the two-layered outer robe, I was even more adept. How could I fail to be with that kind of obsession? This is what is meant by the saying that wherever there is a passionate interest, there is success. Meditation is the same. If you're passionately interested, you don't sleep very much. The mind is awake. It's concentrating. It's looking. That's like that. This is like this. Until you're proficient. I'd been wearing my lower robe, my sabong, for two years, and it was almost threadbare. I'd have to hitch it up when I sat down. One day, I was sweeping leaves in the central area of the monastery at Ban Ba Tao. It was hot, and I was sweating. Without thinking, I squatted down for a rest, without hitching the lower robe first, and it ripped right across the backside. I had to borrow a layman's sarong. There was no patching cloth around, and so in the end, I had to wash out a foot wiping rag, and put the patch on the inside of the lower robe. I sat down and thought to myself, why did the Buddha make monks suffer so much? You can't ask for cloth. You can't do anything to help yourself. I felt dispirited. Both my outer robe and my lower robe were torn. I sat in meditation, and was able to make a fresh resolve. I thought, all right, whatever happens, I'm not going to give up. If I've got no robes, I'll just go naked. My mind was really fired up. I thought I'd take these things to the limit and see what it would be like. From then on, I wore robes patched front and back and gave up thoughts of changing them. I went to pay respects to Lumpu Kinnery again. While I was living with him, I wasn't like the others, and neither was he. He was watching me. I didn't ask for anything while I was there. Whenever my robes ripped a bit more, I found cloth to patch them. He didn't invite me to stay, and I didn't ask to stay, and yet stay I did, steadily continuing my practice. We didn't speak to each other. It was almost like a kind of contest. Just before the rains retreat, he must have told the nuns that there was a monk come to stay, whose robes were in tatters. He asked them to make a new set from some hand-woven cloth that had been offered a short while before. Thick, sturdy material dyed in jackfruit dye. The nuns sewed the whole thing by hand using corpse pulling thread. I was overjoyed. I wore that robe for four or five years without it ever ripping. But when it was new, the cloth was really stiff and didn't adapt to the shape of my body. It looked like a big earthenware pot. As I walked, it made a loud soup sup soup sup sound. With my outer robe worn on top of it, the extra two layers of cloth made me look even more immense. If I'd worn that robe up a mountain and met a tiger, I'm sure it wouldn't have dared attack. Its roar would have died in its mouth.
it would have been completely bemused by the stiff, yellow figure in front of it. I didn't have a grumble about that robe, and after I'd been wearing it for a year or so, it started to soften up. I wore that robe for a long time, and to this day I'm conscious of the debt of gratitude I owe to Lungbu Ginnery for giving it to me without being asked. It was my great fortune to be given that robe, and from that time onwards my feelings of discontent left me. When I looked at my actions from the past until the present and into the future, it made me think that whatever volitional action isn't immoral, doesn't cause distress and makes one feel content and happy, that is good gamma. It was the view I held, and perceiving its truth made it seem that things were starting to fit into place. And so I accelerated my meditation practice for all I was worth. An Unsung Virtue But the old demon of lust was by no means vanquished. During the hot season Tudong of 1948, before returning to Lungpo Ginnery's monastery, Lungpo found a suitable place for meditation practice at Wat Ban Tong in the Konpanom province and decided to take a rest from his wanderings for a while. After some days, however, he came to feel uncomfortably conscious of the glances and modest smiles of one of the monastery's female lay supporters. In Isan folklore, the naive monk, entrapped and tempted to abandon his monastic vocation by a wily young widow, is a common theme. Its popularity is perhaps due to the singularity of such a subtle courtship, initiated, cued and paced by the woman rather than the man. At Bantong, the protagonist seemed to have stepped out of a minstrel song. She was indeed a widow, one of the women who came to the monastery every morning to offer food. Unable to approach Lung Po directly, she sought to create a connection between them by endearing her son to him. It worked. Lung Po conceived a warm affection for the boy. His attraction to the woman became compounded by the tenderness he felt for her son. Lung Po was used to keeping his own counsel. He did not reveal to anyone just how strong his feelings for this woman had become. However, the extent to which he felt his emotions were overwhelming his better judgment may be guessed by the way in which he resolved the problem. Early one morning, postulant Gao was shaken awake and opened his eyes to see Lung Po looking down at him. Lung Po had his robe on, his bowl packed and was ready to leave. The old man started to plead, Can't you wait until tomorrow morning? But he was immediately cut off, No. Lung Po's voice was gruff in the darkness. We're going right now. Lung Po's rationale for his hasty retreat is apparent from teachings he gave his students in later years. In those instructions, he would emphasize that monks be honest with themselves about their weaknesses and not be swayed by pride. If they had insufficient resources to deal with the challenge, then they should humbly accept that, make a tactical withdrawal, and work on developing the resources to be available to deal more effectively with the challenge the next time it occurred. The underlying conviction must be 
that physical lust is not a fixed part of a monk's nature that he can only hope to suppress. While it is certainly an immensely powerful and deeply ingrained habit of body and mind, it is one dependent on causes and conditions that can and should be completely eliminated through the practice of the Eightfold Path. A Mighty Struggle As related earlier, Lung Po returned to Lung Bu Ginnery's monastery before the beginning of the rains retreat and was soon presented with a new robe. He accelerated his meditation, keeping up his walking practice, even if the sun was fierce or the rain was pouring down until the centre of his walking path was worn into a furrow. Lung Bu Ginnery, on the other hand, hardly walked at all. Sometimes he might be seen strolling up and down his meditation path two or three times, and then sitting down in a shady place to patch a piece of cloth or repair something broken. I assumed that he was getting nowhere. He didn't practice walking meditation. He never sat for very long. He would just potter around doing this and that the whole day. As for me, I thought, I hardly take a moment's rest, and I still haven't realized anything. If Lung Bu is practicing like this, what can he ever hope to achieve? I got it wrong. Lung Bu Ginnery knew far more than me. He seldom gave admonitions, and those he did were terse, but his words were always profound and full of a keen wisdom. Lung Po summarized the important lesson he had learned. The scope of a teacher's vision far exceeds our own. It is the effort to eradicate the defilements within the mind that is the essence of practice. You can't judge the teacher by how much he sits and walks. During this rains retreat, sexual desire, a thrashing, pounding storm of it, returned to assail Lung Po's body and mind. It blew up at a time when he was putting great efforts into his practice. One interpretation might be that such single-minded introspection brought repressed desires to the surface. The most usual way for the forest teachers to describe this phenomenon, however, is to personalize the defilements as tyrants who have held sway over the mind for countless lifetimes and who, now seeing a threat to their hegemony, react violently with the most powerful forces at their disposal. Whatever the explanation, Lung Po suddenly found himself in that hot, damp forest, engulfed in a realm of vaginas. Eyes open or closed, tens, hundreds of the hallucinatory images surrounded him, devastatingly real. The power of his lust was almost unbearable, as fierce as the fear he had felt in the cremation forest. There was nothing to do but grimly endure. Some explanation may be called for to make clear the full extent of Lung Po's predicament. The Buddha taught that on the path to enlightenment, sexual desire can and eventually must be completely transcended. To this end, monks undertake an absolute form of celibacy, in order to isolate and reveal the impermanent, unsatisfactory and impersonal nature of sexual desire, and thus uproot identification with it. 
the weight of the discipline is thrown behind this practice by making intentional emission of semen one of its most serious offences, a Sankhadi Sesa. If committed, it necessitates a period of penance and rehabilitation that is deeply embarrassing to the transgressor. He has to, for instance, publicly confess his offence to the Sangha on every day of the penance, and it's inconvenient for the community of monks. Even if he stops short of masturbation, a monk who makes the slightest deliberate attempt to excite himself sexually or physically relieve sexual feelings commits an offence nonetheless, albeit of a less grave nature. He is given, therefore, absolutely no choice but to face up to the tension of lust. Until insight arises, a monk must be sustained by patient endurance, wise reflection, calmness of mind and confidence in the value of struggling with such feelings. Longpore was in constant fear of ejaculation. During this period, he did not dare practice walking meditation. He was afraid that if the friction of his lower robe stimulated his penis too much, he would be unable to control himself. He asked a layman to make him a walking path deep in the forest, so that he could walk there at night time with his lower robe hitched up around his waist. It was a full ten days before the alluring visions and the lust they engendered finally faded. Many years later, Lung Po told his oldest friend Po Put, perhaps in jest and perhaps not, that the vaginas belonged to all his wives of previous existences. Whatever their origin, this episode was to prove the one last great hurrah of his sexual nature. Finding skillful means to deal with sexual desire is a major preoccupation for many young monks, and in later years, Lung Po was to speak of this incident to his disciples on a number of occasions. He was keen for them to see that such feelings were natural and that they could be transcended with determination. He himself had survived the onslaught, not through an intimidating amount of concentration or dazzling wisdom, but a good, old-fashioned, unromantic, teeth-gritting endurance. In 1968, when a first short biography of Lung Po was being written, he insisted that his vagina hallucinations be included. The author, his disciple Ajahn Mahamon, was rather uneasy about how such frank revelations would go down with the general public. It was not the kind of material usually found in such books. Lung Po said that if he omitted that passage, then he could just forget about the whole project. The rains retreat at Wat Ba Manong He was not all blood and thunder grimness. On the contrary, one night as Lung Po lay down to sleep, at the end of a long period of meditation, he was greeted by a vision of Lung Bu Man standing in front of him, holding out a glittering jewel. Lung Bu Man said, Cha, I'm giving this to you. See how bright and radiant it is. Lung Po sat up and stretched out his right hand to receive the jewel. At that moment, he woke up and found himself sitting on his mat hand forming a fist, as if grasping something supremely precious. 
Longpo's spirits received a tremendous spur from that auspicious vision, and for the remainder of the retreat, he was fired by an unquenchable enthusiasm for practice. Longpo remained at Nonghi until the hot season of the following year, 1949, when, under a searing sun, he resumed his wandering once more. But first, following the ancient tradition, he offered to Lungpu Ginnery a tray of candles, incense, and toothwoods that he had made himself from the astringent Kota tree, and asked forgiveness for any faults he might have knowingly or unknowingly committed during his stay. Lungpu Ginnery praised Lungpu's dedication to practice, but in his laconic way, warned him of the distractions that might arise with his gift for expounding the Dhamma. Venerable Cha, everything in your practice is fine, but be wary of giving talks. Variously Handicapped Some days into their walk, Luang Po and his new companion, Venerable Luam, stopped overnight in a cremation forest. In the morning, after walking for arms in a nearby village, they were followed back to the forest by two teenage boys. The boys asked if Luang Po would allow them to follow him as students and attendants. Once Luang Po was sure that the boys' parents had no objection, he agreed. He was moved by the boys' resolution. These two lads were physically handicapped, but they had faith in the Buddha's teachings and volunteered to share the hardships of the Tudong life. They gave me plenty of food for thought. One of them had sound legs and eyes, but was stone deaf. We had to communicate with him by making signs. The other one's eyes and ears worked normally, but he had a deformed leg that would sometimes get caught in the good one as he walked along and make him fall to the ground. They followed us because it was their own deepest wish to do so, and their handicaps couldn't deter them in any way. The Tudong monk has many hours a day to turn the light inwards on his mind, which, as a result of the interest afforded it, often enters into a naturally reflective mode. The echoing call of a far-off gibbon, a small decomposing creature on the path, a sudden cooling breeze, the small events of the day and the feelings they evoke become raw material for inquiry. Observations and insights, which for the non-meditator would normally be drowned by an incessant internal din, can acquire a powerful resonance. Walking along the bone-hard paths of Nakonpanom, accompanied by the incessant shrill of crickets from the neighbouring trees, some covered in blossoms of lush, improbable pinks, yellows and reds, others shrunken and desiccated, Lung Po felt his mind turning again and again to his new, young companions. Years later, he was to recount to his disciples some of the reflections the company of these boys provoked. Their courage and determination seemed to him an excellent example of the power of the mind to overcome obstacles. They did not choose to be born with such difficulties. It certainly was the last thing their parents would have wished, and yet their lives were dominated by them. As the Buddha had taught so often, all beings are born of their actions, are its owners and heirs. Nevertheless, 
Lung Po was reminded by these boys that through a wise response to one's kummic inheritance, dignity may be found. And as he walked along the forest track, and the rhythm of the steady pace led his mind into further reflections, he mused, These boys are physically handicapped, but if they wander off the path and enter a thick forest they are aware of it. I too am handicapped by the defilements in my mind, and if they lead me into a dark forest, then am I aware of it? The boys are of no harm to anyone, but any mind severely disabled by the defilements can cause untold turmoil and distress to other people. Sleeping on an Old Path At dusk one day, the small group reached the edge of a thick forest. The moment they entered its shade, they felt the temperature drop abruptly, and they reveled in the coolness. The forest encircled a steep-sided hill studded with harsh, rocky outcrops, from which a stream gurgled down in defiance of the season, water to drink and water for bathing. Just visible across the rice fields was a small village, on which they could rely for arms in the morning. It looked a good place to stop for the night. As they scouted for places to put up their glots, Lung Po noticed a small, overgrown path winding up through the jungle to the hillside. He was reminded of an old folk saying that he had never really understood, don't lie down across an old path in the forest. He decided to ignore the advice and see what would happen. Lung Po sent Venerable Luam off some distance into the forest, and then had the two boys set up their places about halfway between the two monks. As for Lung Po, he put up his glot right across the overgrown path. After bathing in the stream, everyone began to practice meditation. Lung Po did not let his mosquito net down, so that the two boys could still see him if they felt afraid. Late that night, he finally laid down mindfully on his right side. Lying across the old path, with his back to the forest, he faced outwards in the direction of the village. At first it seemed that nothing would happen, that avoiding the path was simply another groundless superstition. But, just as sleep was about to draw him inwards, Lung Po caught the faint sound of dry leaves crackling. Something large was moving towards him at a slow, confident pace. As it got closer and closer, Lung Po could hear the sound of its breathing. He smelt on the wind the unmistakably rank odour that meant a tiger was approaching. He tried to lie as still as a rock, but one part of his mind panicked and he started to shake uncontrollably. Fear was short-lived, however. He admonished himself, forget about this life. Even if the tiger doesn't kill you, you're still going to die anyway. Dying while following in the footsteps of the Buddha means something. If you've never killed and eaten a tiger in the past, then it won't hurt you. If you have, let it eat you and settle the debt. In times of intense fear, the Buddha taught monks to recollect the virtues of the Triple Gem. He likened its uplifting effect on the mind, 
to the sight that an army's standard has on a soldier in the heat of battle. Lung Po recollected the virtues of the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, and the purity of his own sealer as his refuge, and felt immediately fortified. Meanwhile, the tiger had stopped. It was motionless behind him in the night. Lung Po could hear it breathing about four or five meters away. He felt the awful tension of waiting for the quickening of that breath and sudden lunge from behind him that would mean the end of his life. But now, the thoughts and fears were somehow outside of his mind. The tiger did not move. A few moments later, Lung Po heard it turn around and slowly return into the depths of the forest. The sound of crackling leaves gradually faded. Perhaps it would only be fair to the almost extinct Thai tiger to add that there are next to no known cases of one attacking a Tudong monk. The tiger is by no means the most dangerous creature in the forest. When surprised or startled by a human being, especially a monk, it will almost always leave the scene with dignity. Not so with elephants. Although the western image of the elephant tends to be of a genial beast who gives rides on its back, never forgets and has a penchant for cream buns. In the wild, it can be an unpredictably and casually violent colossus. Its way of dealing with annoying humans is either to stamp on them or grab them with its trunk and smack them against a tree. Lung Bu Man considered bears the most dangerous creature and would give a special whistle to warn them of his coming. But fear is immune to logic and statistics. There is something about the tiger that is primeval and uniquely evocative. Lung Ta Mahabur once spoke of meeting a tiger in the wild. If the fear is defeated, the mind will be overwhelmed by courage and enjoy profound inner peace. If fear is the victor, it will multiply itself rapidly and prodigiously. The whole body will be enveloped by both a perspiring heat and a chilling cold by the desire to pass urine and to defecate. The monk will be suffocated by fear and will look more like a dying than a living man. Luang Po, suddenly propelled into what he perceived as a life-and-death situation, had summoned forth a power in his mind that he was not aware existed. He later said of this incident that as soon as he gave up all concern for his life, and simply let go without regrets or fear. He was filled with a deep calm and contentment that was accompanied by a mindfulness and wisdom of great keenness. His mind was bold and unflinching, ready to face whatever happened. It was a marvellous thing. The Good Person Alone should a monk sit, alone should he rest. Without laziness he should wander alone. Alone should he tame himself. Alone he should find joy in the forest life. Dhammapada verse 305 Luang Po began to experience an almost physical hunger for solitude. As his practice progressed, so also did the conviction that it was being hindered by the sense of responsibility he felt for his travelling companions. 
he realized that he had reached a point at which he needed to withdraw into himself and develop his meditation without external distractions. He discussed the matter with Venerable Luam, who offered to take the two boys home, and the next day their parting took place. Alone for the first time, Luang Po strode purposefully away. If a slight queasiness in the base of his stomach disturbed the feelings of excitement and exultation at a newfound freedom, he paid it no heed. The following afternoon, Luang Po came upon a deserted monastery just outside the village of Ban Kanoi. It seemed an appropriate place for the work he had to do, and he put up his glot in the dusty hall. Alone at last, Lung Po felt untrammeled and free. He intensified his efforts, sustaining a close and alert awareness over his eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, not allowing his mind to seek the least distraction in the sensual world. This was the method he knew that was most effective in preventing a dissipation of mental energy and creating the supporting conditions for single-minded focus on a meditation object. Sense impressions can have as much impact on the meditator as strong variable winds on a tightrope walker. Indulgence in the pleasurable sound of a young woman's voice singing in a nearby field or eating a little too much sticky rice at the morning meal are hardly evil acts. They can, nevertheless, throw the monk's mind frustratingly out of kilter for many hours. On arms round, Luang Po kept his eyes steadily downcast, responded to the inquiries of the local villagers in a taciturn manner. Right now, he did not wish for social visits from the faithful laity, and strive to keep a firm grasp of his meditation object on every measured step of the way. As soon as he had finished his daily meal and washed his bowl at the well, he would start with the first of the day's many hours of walking meditation. But even Luang Po's travel-hardened body could not measure up to the demands he made upon it. Before long, his feet were so swollen from his exertions that, reluctantly, he abandoned his walking practice and devoted himself exclusively to sitting meditation. It was three days before the severe pains in his feet subsided. In the deserted monastery he dwelt in, small signs of former inhabitants were all around him. Candle wax drippings dotted the floor. Behind the altar there were discoloured books eaten through by termites. It was a created solitude, one born of rejection, and therefore was sad in a way that the most remote mountaintop or cave could never be. One day, to his exasperation, Lumpur realized he was feeling lonely. One of his characteristic internal dialogues ensued. I started thinking that it would be good to have a small novice or a postulant to help out with a few odd jobs around here. But then, other thoughts started to challenge that line of thought. You're really something. Only a short time ago, you were fed up with your companions. So now, why do you want to find some more? Yes, it's true, I was fed up, but only with people who aren't good companions. Right now, I need a good companion. So where are the good people? Can you search them out? 
You haven't been satisfied with any of your travelling companions so far. You must think you're the only good person around to have left them behind and come here alone. Lung Po said that when that thought arose, he gained an insight that was to stay with him from that day onwards. Where is the good person? It's lying within us. If we're good, then wherever we go, the goodness goes with us. People may praise us, blame us or treat us with contempt, but whatever they say or do, the goodness remains. Without goodness, our mind constantly wavers. We're angered by criticism and pleased by praise. Through knowing where the good person dwells, we have a principle to rely on in letting go of thought. If we go somewhere where people dislike us or say things about us, then we don't consider that to be because they're good or bad. We know that goodness and badness lie within us. Nobody can know us as well as we know ourselves. Explosions Lung Po continued on his wanderings, looking for peaceful places to practice, until one day he reached Ban Kok Yao, where he came across a deserted monastery about half a kilometre from the edge of the hamlet. His mind felt light and tranquil. It was as if there was some kind of gathering of forces. One night there was a festival in the village. Sometime after eleven o'clock, while I was practicing walking meditation, I began to feel a bit strange. In fact, this feeling, an unusual kind of calmness and ease, had first appeared during the day. When I became weary from walking, I went into the small grass-roof hut to sit and was taken by surprise. Suddenly, my mind desired tranquility so intensely that I could hardly cross my legs quickly enough. It just happened by itself. Almost immediately, the mind did indeed become peaceful. It felt firm and stable. It wasn't that I couldn't hear the sounds of merrymaking in the village. I could still hear them, but I could also choose not to hear them. It was strange. When I paid no attention to the sounds, there was silence. If I wanted to hear them, I could and felt no irritation. Within my mind, it was as if there were two objects standing there together, but with no connection between them. I saw the mind and its sense object established in different areas, like a kettle and a spittoon placed by a monk's seat. I realized that if concentration is still weak, you hear sounds, but when the mind is empty, then it's silent. If a sound arises and you look at the awareness of it, you see that the awareness is separate from the sound. I reflected, well, how else could it be? That's just the way it is. They're unconnected. I kept considering this point until I realized, ah, this is important. When continuity, santati, between things is broken, then there's peace, santi. Formerly there had been santati, and now santi had emerged from it. I continued with my meditation. My mind was completely indifferent to all external phenomena. If I'd wanted to stop meditating at that point, 
I could have done so at my leisure. Would it have been because I was lazy, because I was tired or bored? No, not at all. There was nothing of that sort in my mind. There was simply an abiding sense of just rightness. If I'd stopped, it would have been merely that. There was no defilement involved. Sometime later, I stopped to rest. But it was only my posture that changed. My mind remained in the same state. I reached for my pillow, intending to sleep. As I laid down, my mind was still as peaceful as it had been before. Just at the moment that my head touched the pillow, within my mind there was a sense of bending or inclining inwards. Where to? I don't know. Then, it was as if a switch. Released electric power into a cable. My body exploded with a tremendous bang. The awareness at that moment was extremely subtle. Having passed that point, it slipped way inside into a realm of nothingness. Nothing could find its way into that place. Nothing could reach it. The awareness stopped there for a short while and then withdrew. But I don't mean that it was an intentional withdrawal. I was merely the witness, the knower. My mind steadily withdrew until it had returned to its normal state. Once my mind had reverted to normality, a question arose: What happened? And the answer appeared: These things are natural phenomena. There's no need to be perplexed by them. Those few words were enough for my mind to accept what was going on. After a short pause, it started to incline inwards again, and at a certain point met the same switch. This time, my body disintegrated into fine fragments, and I slipped within again. There was a completely impenetrable silence. It was superior to the first time. After an appropriate length of time, my mind withdrew. Everything happened automatically. I didn't exercise any will or influence on what happened. I didn't try to make things happen according to a plan, to enter that state or leave it in any particular way. I just maintained awareness, simply kept observing. My mind withdrew to a normal state again, and I didn't speculate about it. I sat there in contemplation, and then it occurred for a third time. And the whole world disintegrated: earth, vegetation, trees, mountains, people. Everything became the space element. It was an end of all things. At this final stage, there was nothing at all. I dwelt in that state for as long as it wanted me. I don't know how such a place could exist. It was difficult to fathom, and it's difficult to talk about. There's nothing that it could be compared to. The third time the mind stayed in that realm was the longest, and when the time was up, it withdrew to a normal state. Those three times, what could they be called? Who could know? I've been describing the natural state of the mind. I haven't spoken in the technical language of consciousness, jitta. And mental concomitants, jetasika, because it's not necessary. I had the faith to get down to the practice, to stake my life. When it reached the time for this kind of thing to emerge, 
the whole world turned upside down. If anyone had seen me then, they might have thought me insane. In fact, for someone with no self-possession, that kind of experience might drive them insane, because after it, nothing is the same as before. People don't look the same anymore, but actually, it's only you who's different, different in every way. Their thoughts go in one direction, and yours go in another. They talk about one thing, and you talk about another. They go up there, and you come down here. You're completely at odds with the human race. Wrong Thinking Lung Po continued his practice at Bangkok Yao for almost three weeks, and then set off walking once more. As he passed through the small villages of Sisong Kram, he felt a profound sense of calm and fluency pervading his mind. The Dhamma flowed effortlessly, both in answering his own doubts and also those of the villagers that, some nights, would come to his glot bearing offerings of tobacco and betel nut lit by their smoking torches. As smoking is not expressly forbidden in the vinaya, and the health hazards associated with it were not known at the time, many forest monks of Luang Po's generation smoked. The Sangha of Wat Bapong outlawed the practice in the late 1960s. Luang Po crossed over the Mekong River into Laos for a short period in order to pay his respects at a famous shrine. After returning to Isan, he decided to rest at a monastery outside Ban Nong Kha. At that time, his old iron bowl had a number of cracks and small holes in it, and the abbot offered him a replacement. It was another opportunity for him to reflect on his desires for requisites and to be reminded that his practice was still not as unshakable as he would like. At Ban Kok Yao, he had experienced a profound level of peace, but now, not too much later, defilements led him astray once more. They offered me a bowl, but it was cracked and it had no lid. Then, I remembered once as a child taking the water buffaloes out to graze, and seeing other lads carving vines and weaving them into hats. So I asked for some rattan. I wove a disc and a rectangle and then joined them. I had my bowl lid. The only thing was, it looked like a sticky rice basket. On arms round it was a real eyesore. The villagers referred to me as the big bowl monk. I just dismissed it. I tried again. I worked day and night on it. It was the wrong kind of effort, fired by craving. At night time, I would light a torch and work alone in the forest. Weaving the strips backwards and forwards, I knocked against the edge of the torch, and drippings from it scalded my hand. I still have the scar to this day. I came to my senses. What am I doing? I'm thinking about this in the wrong way. I've become a monk and now I'm going without sleep just to get robes and a bowl. This is the wrong sort of effort. I put down the work. I sat and thought things through, and then I practiced some walking meditation. But as I walked back and forth, my mind returned to the bowl lid, and I went back to the work, completely absorbed until just before dawn. I was tired. I took a break and began to meditate. As I sat, the thought came again, this is wrong. 
I started to drowse a little, and I saw a vision of a huge Buddha. He said, Come here, I'm going to give you a Dhamma talk. I went towards him and prostrated. He gave me a discourse about the requisites. He said that they are merely the accessories of the body and mind. I woke with a start, my body shaking. Even now, I can still hear the sound of his voice in my ear. I'd learned my lesson. I'd been blinded by desire, but now I stopped. I worked for a reasonable time and then rested, walked and practiced sitting meditation. This was a really important point. Formally, whatever work it might be, if it was still unfinished and I put it aside and went to meditate, my mind would still be attached to it. I couldn't shake it off. However much I had tried to lever it out of my mind, it wouldn't budge. So I took this as a mental training, a training in abandonment, in putting down. Whatever I did, I determined not to finish it quickly. After working on the bowl lid for a while, I would go and practice meditation. But whether I was walking or sitting, my mind would be wrapped up in the bowl lid and wouldn't concentrate on anything else. I saw how difficult it is for the mind to let go. It clings so tenaciously. But I gained another principle of contemplation. Don't hurry to get anything finished. Do a little and then put it down. Look at your mind. If it's still going round and round with the unfinished work, then look at how that feels. That's when it starts to be fun. Go to battle. I was determined not to stop until I had trained my mind to the point that when I worked, I just worked. And when I stopped, I would be able to put the work down in my mind. I would make work and rest separate, discreet, so that there would be no suffering. But it was extremely difficult to train in that way. Attachments are difficult to abandon, difficult to put down. The idea I'd had of getting things over and done with as soon as possible wasn't exactly wrong, but from the point of view of Dhamma, it's not correct, because there's nothing that you can know once and for all if your mind refuses to stop. I came to reflect on feeling. How can you let go of pleasant and unpleasant feelings when they are still present? It's the same as with the bowlid. So this was the principle. Don't do anything with the thought of getting it finished. Put it down at regular intervals and go and practice walking meditation. As soon as my mind went back to worrying about the work, I tell it off, oppose it. I train myself, talk to myself alone in the forest. I just kept fighting. Afterwards, it was less of a burden. As I kept practicing, I found it easier to separate work from rest. After that, whether it was sewing robes or crocheting a bowl cover or whatever I was doing, I trained myself. I could do it or I could put it down. I got to know the cause of suffering and that is how Dhamma arises. Subsequently, whether I was standing, walking, sitting or lying down, I felt a radiance and enjoyment that lasted until finally the bowl lid was finished. But on arms round, the villagers still looked at me in my bowl with baffled expressions. Sometime later, 
I remembered having once seen a kind of tray in someone's house in Bangkok that would make a reasonable bowl lid. So that's what I did. I got hold of a tray, bent the edges up, soldered them, and used that as my lid. I never thought of asking anything from anyone. But Long Po's tribulations were not at an end. Iron arms bowls demanded a lot of attention. Monks had to be constantly on their guard against rust. One method of protecting the bowl was to varnish it. Later on, I remembered that as a novice, I'd once seen a monk using the sap of the giang tree to varnish his bowl, so I thought I'd give it a try. I went down to Ban Kok in Lung Nok Ta district because there's a lot of giang wood down there, and I painted my whole bowl and lid. A layman suggested putting it in a basket and lowering it down into a well so that it would dry more quickly. Three days. And it should be ready for use. Fat chance! I waited over a month, and it still wasn't dry. I couldn't go on arms round. I couldn't go anywhere. During meditation, thoughts of concern for the bowl would arise. I spent my whole time lifting the basket up and down that well to check on whether the varnish was dry. I really suffered. In the end, I realized that even if I left it in the water for a year. It probably wouldn't work, so I asked a layman to bring some paper to wrap around the outside of the bowl. Then at least I could go on arms round. I was afraid of the comic consequences of asking the laypeople for a new one. I just endured. Teachings from a barking deer. On a number of occasions already referred to. Luang Po's distinctive way of reflecting on Dhamma has been revealed. It consisted of a robust internal dialogue, a series of questions and answers, or a debate between two opposing viewpoints took place in his mind until the truth was arrived at, some valuable lesson learned, some decision made. That skill was in evidence again, and probably saved his life in the heart of the mountains of Nakhon Panom. Long Po had not come across a village for a few days, and he was starting to become weak from lack of food. He felt tired and light-headed. His legs were rubbery climbing uphill, and his breath short. And then a fever struck. As he lay in the shade of a tree, too exhausted to move, he took stock of the situation. Little water, no sign of a village, and his body on fire. As Long Po made peace with the realization that his chances of survival were low, a disturbing thought arose in his mind: Suppose a hunter should discover his corpse and send news back to Ubon, how distressing and inconvenient it would be for his family to have to come such a long way to arrange a funeral. He groped in his bag for his monk's identification booklet. If the worst came to the worst. He would burn it so that nobody would ever know who he was. Just then, he was roused from these somber thoughts by the sound of a barking deer echoing loudly through the forested valley below. It made him ask himself, "Do barking deer and other creatures get ill? Yes, of course they do. They've got bodies just as we do. 
Do they have medicines? Do they have doctors who give them injections? No, of course not. They make do with whatever shoots and leaves they can find. The creatures in the wild don't have medicines. They have no doctors to look after them, and yet they don't seem to die out. The forest is full of them and they're young, isn't it? Yes, that's true. These simple thoughts were enough to shake Long Po out of the despair that was enveloping his mind. He struggled up into a sitting position and forced himself to sip some water. He crossed his legs and started to meditate. By morning, the fever had abated. Weapons of Dhamma Speaking to his disciples decades later, Luang Po spoke fondly of his Tudong years. In those days, I didn't even have a water filter. Requisites were very hard to come by. I had a tiny aluminium dipper that I was very possessive of. I still smoked in those days. There were no matches then, but I had a bamboo tinderbox with half a lemon skin as a cap. At night time, when I was weary from walking meditation, I'd sit down and light a cigarette. I reckoned that if there were any spirits around, the sound of striking that flint bock bock in the middle of the night would have frightened them all away. When I look back on the days when I was practicing alone, it was painful and full of the most challenging ordeals, but at the same time I really enjoyed it. The enjoyment and the suffering went together, pretty much the same as eating grilled bekar leaves, dipped in chilli sauce and ground ginger. It's delicious, but it's hot. You're eating it, and the snot's flowing down, but you can't stop because it tastes so good. You're eating away, and at the same time you're groaning, oh, oh. That's what the practice was like in those days. You have to be really resolute to practice Dhamma. It's not a light thing, it's heavy. You have to put your life on the line. A tiger's going to eat you. An elephant's going to trample you. Then, so be it. You think like that. When you've kept your precepts purely, there's nothing more to worry about. It's as if you're already dead. If you die, then it's as if there's nothing to die. And so you're not afraid. This is called the weapon of Dhamma. I've been on mountaintops all over the country, and this single weapon of Dhamma has always triumphed. You completely let go. You're bold. You're ready to die. You risk your life. As I thought about it, I saw how the weapon of the Buddha strengthens the mind. It's the best of all weapons. I kept reflecting, looking, thinking, seeing. When the mind truly sees, it penetrates things completely. Suffering is like this. The cessation of suffering is like this. And so, there's ease and contentment. Someone who sees suffering but doesn't penetrate right through it, who's content with feelings of inner peace, they have no way of knowing this. If someone is unafraid of death, if they're ready to give their life, then they won't die. If you let suffering go beyond suffering, it comes to an end. Comprehend it. See the truth of things. See the nature of things. That has real value. It makes the mind powerful. 
Do you think it would be possible for such a mind to be afraid of anybody, to be afraid of the forest, to be afraid of wild animals? It's staunch and strong. The heart of a meditation monk is incredibly resolute. Through meditation, anybody who is ready to give their life for the Dhamma develops a mind that is great in size and scope, utterly firm. The ability to let go becomes sublime. All this is called vitaka, raising something up in the mind, and then vichara, examining it. These two things keep working together until the matter is fully penetrated. At this point, rapture, bhiti, arises in the mind. As I thought of practicing walking meditation, or of the virtues of the Buddha or the Dhamma, the rapture seeped through my whole body and thoroughly refreshed it. As I sat there, my mind overflowed with joy in my actions. All the obstacles I'd overcome and my hair stood on end and tears started to fall. I felt even more inspired to struggle and persevere. There was no question of discouragement arising whatever happened. There was vitakka, vichara, rapture, and a bliss accompanied by awareness. The mind was upheld by the vitakka and vichara and stabilized by the bliss. At that moment, you could say it was dependent on the power of absorption, jhana if you like, I don't know. That's just how it was. If you want to call it absorption, then go ahead. Before long, vitakka and vichara were abandoned. Rapture disappeared and the mind had a single focus, ekagata. Samadhi was firmly established and the lucid calm that is a foundation for wisdom had arisen. So I gained the insight that it's through practice that knowing and seeing take place. Studying and thinking about it is something else altogether. Even the thoughts and assumptions you make about how things will be are included in the things that you see clearly and they are revealed to be in contradiction to the way things are. So now I was content. Fat or thin, healthy or ill, I was content. I never wondered where my mother was or where this or that friend or relation was. There was none of that. I just resolved in my mind that if I died, then I died, and that was all there was to it. I had no worries. That's how firm my mind was. And so, there was no more holding back. My mind was invigorated and pushed me on. However many Dhamma talks you listen to, however much you study, the knowledge you gain from that doesn't take you all the way to truth. And so it can never free you of doubts and hesitation. You have to practice. If your knowledge is a realization of the truth, then things come to a conclusion. I don't know how you'd put it into words, but it just happens naturally. It's inevitable. It's nothing other than the natural mind, the pakati citta, arising. Saving the Sweets That year, Lung Po spent the rains retreat in a small monastery of the Dhammayut sect. Although Lung Po was now a monk of ten years' standing, 
and dedicated to maintaining the monks' discipline scrupulously, he was still affiliated with the Mahanikai order, in which the general attitude towards the Vinaya varied between relaxed and downright lax. For this reason, Mahanikai monks would not usually be accepted for long-term stays in Dhammayut monasteries. This monastery made an exception for Luang Po, with the condition that he retained his status as an Akanduka, or visiting monk. That is to say, he would not be considered a full member of the community, and his seniority would not be recognized in formal situations. This protocol was, and in many places still is, common, although the position usually taken these days is that it's required by the difference in lineage. The unspoken rationale, as has been earlier mentioned, was that Mahanikai monks were, at worst, not proper monks, and, at best, impure ones. It might be expected that having put so much effort into studying the discipline, Lung Po would find this judgment galling, but he remained unfazed. He was well aware of the standard upheld in Dhammayut monasteries and was willing to accept it. As he was to say later, he reflected that what he was didn't depend on how other people treated him. In fact, the seriousness with which Lung Po took the Vinaya was to have ironic consequences. An incident during the retreat revealed him to be more scrupulous in keeping to the Vinaya than the leader of the strict community that had grudgingly accepted him. The incident concerned the rule that states that a monk may only consume foodstuffs that have been formally offered into his hands. The commentary to the rule stipulates that if a monk should deliberately touch unoffered food, then not only he, but any monk whosoever may not eat it, even if the food is subsequently offered to him in the correct manner. One morning after arms round, Lung Po returned to his kuti, which was situated near the kitchen. Happening to glance through the kuti's window, he caught sight of the abbot acting strangely. Standing near a charcoal fire, on which unattended bamboo sections of sweet rice were beginning to burn, he seemed caught in a moment of indecision. Then, mind made up, the abbot known for his fondness for sweet rice, after looking left and right, quickly turned over the bamboo sections. At the meal, the old abbot noticed that Lung Po was not eating any of the roasted sweet rice. He asked him innocently whether he had taken any, and Lung Po's even polite denial caused the abbot's face to turn a deep red over his bowl. A few seconds later, he loudly confessed his offence to the embarrassed community. This episode seems to have made a deep impression on Luang Po. At least twenty years later, it was one of the few stories of his Tudong travels that he related to his biographer. But to anyone other than a Buddhist monk, the significance of the anecdote is not so easy to fathom. It may seem that the abbot acted sensibly. He saved the rice from burning at the expense of some minor infringement of the rules. Common sense won the day. For a forest monk, this is a story of integrity. The Vinaya is an honor system. No police force or external authority compels monks to follow the rules. Great value is put on honesty and integrity. Concealing offenses is considered especially blameworthy. 
there are no exemptions to the rules for senior monks. On the contrary, the elders in a community are expected to be the most scrupulous in their adherence to them. For a senior monk to succumb to sense desires, to commit an offence in full awareness, first checking for witnesses, to conceal the offence and then compound it by eating the food made unallowable, would have compromised his position of authority. Lumpur's quiet refusal of the food meant that he was taking the strictest possible interpretation of the rule. His discretion pricked the offender's conscience where confrontation might have led to more denial or conflict. Deathly Messengers The monastery was bordered by a cremation forest, in the heart of which stood a small, open-sided pavilion. It was in this secluded spot that Long Po would spend much of his time. One day, while he was practicing sitting meditation in the pavilion, a crow swooped down to the branch of a nearby tree and began to caw loudly. Long Po paid it no attention. Seeing his indifference, the crow glided down from its perch and placed the dried grass it held in its beak on the ground in front of him. It stood there staring at Long Po for a while, and crowing insistently, Gar, gar, gar. Lung Po was struck by the strangeness of the crow's behavior. It was as if the grass was some kind of gift or sign. As soon as the crow noticed it had caught Lung Po's interest, it abandoned the grass on the ground and flew away. Three days later, the villagers carried the body of a thirteen-year-old boy into the forest. He had died of a fever and they cremated him by the side of the pavilion. Three or four days after that, the crow came to visit Lung Po again, bearing with it another mouthful of dried grass and acting in exactly the same way as on the previous occasion. Within a few days, the brother of the first child was carried into the forest, victim of a sudden and inexplicable illness. After another three-day interval, the crow returned once more, and shortly afterwards, with the grim inevitability, the corpse of another child was brought into the forest for cremation. This time, it was the eldest sister of the two boys. The parents and close relatives of the dead children followed the funeral bier, bowed and shrunken with grief. The sight of the third young corpse and the desolate funeral party filled Lung Po with an intensely cool and sober sadness. The phrase cool and sober sadness is a translation of the difficult Thai term salot sangwet. Sangwet is derived from the Pali sangvega, usually translated as a sense of urgency. The problem in rendering this phrase accurately is not merely one of language. It is a term that employs everyday words to describe an unusual experience, one that arises as a result of Buddhist meditation and, as such, not fully accessible to non-meditators, even Buddhist ones. It is both like and unlike ordinary sorrow. It's an elevated or transfigured sorrow. Intensive Buddhist meditation practice engenders within the mind a profound receptivity to the truth of the human condition. The daily tragedies of human existence are seen in a fresh context. Events are experienced as external expressions of an all-embracing insubstantiality. 
with his faculties heightened by meditation. Lung Po watched the pain of the ragged group of mourners dragging past him. The suffering that is inseparable from love was revealed in all its rawness. He was filled with Salot Sangwed. The suffering that Lung Po witnessed in the cremation forest aroused him to even greater efforts. He further increased his hours of meditation practice and reduced still more his already meagre hours of sleep. He would practice walking meditation even as the rain poured down and created puddles around his feet. If, as a rice farmer, he had ploughed the fields in such weather, he reasoned, why could he not endure the rain for the sake of this far more valuable work? In one meditation session, Lung Po had a powerful vision. He saw himself walking along a road and passing by an old man racked by pain, groaning pitifully. He stopped, but did not move towards the man. After contemplating the sad figure for some time, he walked on. Further along the way, he saw a body lying in the dirt by the side of the road. It was a man on the point of death, severely emaciated, his breath weak and fitful. Lung Po stood contemplating the sight and continued on his way. Lastly, he came across a bloated and discoloured corpse. Its eyes protruded grotesquely. Its swollen black tongue crammed the mouth, teeming with maggots. Once more, he contemplated the sight and walked on. The sense of sober sadness these images evoked was all-encompassing. They remained clearly in his mind's eye in the following weeks, deepening his growing disenchantment with conditioned existence and his strong desire for liberation from the attachments that still bound him to it. During this period, Lung Po also experimented with fasting, but it brought him no gains in tranquility of mind, merely heat and discomfort in the body. He concluded that it was a method unsuited to his temperament and returned to his former practice of eating once a day. The Buddha's teaching of the three cardinal or invariably correct principles of spiritual development, moderation in eating, sense restraint and constant wakefulness, made more and more sense to him, and they were to form the basis of many Dhamma talks to his disciples in later years. He renewed his emphasis on continuity of practice rather than extreme asceticism, and his practice advanced smoothly as a result. With mind free from hindrances, his investigation of Dhamma was, for the moment, skilled and unobstructed. Lankar Mountain At the end of the retreat, the resident Sangha prepared to set off on a Tudong trek into Laos. By this time, their attitude to Luang Po was much changed, and they tried to persuade him to accompany them. But Luang Po declined. A nagging problem had now arisen in his meditation, and he needed to seek expert advice. Parting ways with his companions of the past few months, he made his way to Langkar Mountain in order to visit Ajahn Wang, a disciple of Luang Po Man. I'd reach so far and then stop. I'll make a comparison. It was as if I was walking along and then stopped, sank down to the ground and was unable to proceed. 
then I'd go back. I'm talking about my awareness, you understand, about my mind. I persevered, but I'd just keep coming back to this same place and find myself at an impasse, halted. That was one kind of feeling. The other was like this. I'd actually collide with a barrier before turning back. I kept up my walking and sitting meditation, but I'd keep finding myself back at this same place. What is this? I asked myself. Whatever it is, just ignore it, came the reply. After a fairly long time it ceased, but shortly afterwards it returned. There was a constant demand for an answer in my mind. What is this? During the day, outside of meditation sessions, this question would be there. The mind was disturbed and kept pressing for an answer. I didn't see this thing for what it was, not to the extent of being able to let it go, and so my mind kept following it around. I started to consider who might be able to help me with my problem, and I thought of Ajahn Wang, who I had heard was living on top of Lankar Mountain with a couple of novices. I didn't know him personally, but thought that he must have some kind of accomplishment to be able to live in such a way. Lung Po climbed up the mountain and spent three nights discussing Dhamma with Ajahn Wang. Many years later, he related their first conversation. Ajahn Wang said, Once, as I was walking, I stopped and contemplated my body sinking down through the ground into the earth. I asked him, Were you fully aware of what was happening, Ajahn? He replied, I was aware. How could I not be? I was aware. As I kept sinking further and further down, I told myself to just let things take their own course. Then I reached the furthest point and started to rise up again. But when I reached the surface, my body didn't stop there. Within moments, I was way up in the air. I just maintained my awareness. It was amazing how such a thing could happen. I rose and rose until I reached the level of the treetops. And then my body exploded. Boom! And then there were my intestines, hanging like garlands from the tree branches. I said, Are you sure it wasn't a dream, Ajahn? Ajahn Wang shook his head. No, it wasn't a dream. If I hadn't maintained my presence of mind, then it might have carried me with it. It really happened in that way. As it took place, I perceived it to be real. To this day, I still remember it as something that actually happened. When nimitters can be of that magnitude, then what is there to say about any lesser kinds? If your body exploded, how would you feel? What if you saw your guts all wrapped around a tree? It was an incredible experience, but I realized that it was a nimitta. I was firm in that. I was confident that there was nothing that could harm me. Then I focused my awareness on the mind itself, and soon the vision disappeared. Then I sat thinking, what was that? Ajahn, I've come to pay my respects to you because I'm at a complete loss what to do. My experience is different from yours. It's as if I'm walking on a truncated bridge that doesn't reach to the other side of the river. I stop. There's no way ahead, 
and I don't know what to do, and so I turn around and go back. This is during my meditation. Or sometimes I carry on right to the end, but there's nowhere to go, and so I return. Other times, there's some kind of obstacle blocking the path, and I collide with it. I can't go any further. It's been like this for a long time now. What is it, Ajahn? Ajahn Wang explained it to me. It's the end. It's the furthest limit of perception. When it occurs in whatever form, then just stand right there and be aware of that perception. If you stand right there, it will be resolved. It will change by itself without the need for any force. Simply be aware of the nature of the perception and the state of your mind. Focus your awareness, and then shortly the perception will change. It will change rather like the perceptions of a child change into those of an adult. As a child, you like to play with toys, but as an adult, you see those toys, and you have no wish to play with them. You play with other things. Oh, I see now. Ajahn Wang said, "Don't speak too soon." There's so many things that can happen. So many things. Just remember that in samadhi, anything can happen. But whatever occurs, it doesn't matter as long as you don't get caught in doubts about it. When you can maintain that awareness, then these phenomena start to lose their significance. The conditioning power of the mind peters out. Maybe you look closely and see a duck, and before long, the duck has turned into a chicken. You keep your eyes on the chicken, and within moments it changes into a dog. You watch the dog, and then it's a pig. It's confusing. There's no end to it. Focus on the mind, concentrate on it, but never think you've come to the end of these kind of phenomena, because before long they'll return. But you keep putting them down. You merely acknowledge them and let them go. Then there's no danger whatsoever. Focus on them in that way, so that your mind has a solid base. Don't chase after them. Once you've solved this problem, then you'll be able to carry on. There'll be a gap to pass through. Old perceptions or any new ones that arise in the future are all of the same basic nature. It's merely that some are more vivid and powerful than others. But no matter how marvelous or sublime such visions might be. Don't make anything of them. That's just the way they are. You must really cultivate this understanding. I asked him, "Why is it that some people seem to have no problems? They don't suffer at all. They meet no obstacles, and everything goes smoothly for them." Ajahn Wang said, "It's the result of gamma. For you, this is a time of struggle. When the mind converges." Then there's contention for the throne. Not everything that is contending is bad, mind you. Some things are good, some are pleasurable, but they're all dangerous. Don't give importance to any of them. Luang Po's mind was cleared of doubts. He felt a great surge of energy and spent the next few days practicing vigorously day and night, hardly stopping to rest. His mind was now able to go beyond the barriers it had erected for itself, and he was able to investigate the four elements of solidity, cohesion, vibration, and heat 
that constitute the physical world, as well as both the true and conventional nature of reality. After three nights, Lung Po paid his respects to Ajahn Wang and resumed his journeying. He reflected on the value of a wise friend. Yes, you can practice on your own, but it can be slow going. When you have only your own way of looking at things, you can get caught in a circle going round and round a particular problem. But if there's someone to point out the way, it's quick. There's a new path of contemplation to pursue. That's how it is for everyone. When we get stuck, we stick tight. I walked down from Lanka Mountain, and at its base, I came to a deserted monastery. Just then it started to rain, and I went to take shelter underneath the wooden dumber hall. As I contemplated the elements, the mind suddenly became firm. Immediately, it was as if I'd entered another world. Whatever I looked at was changed. I felt that the kettle in front of me was not a kettle. The spittoon was transformed, and so was my bowl. Everything had changed its state. In the way that your hand seems to, if you flip it over from front to back. It was like a cloud suddenly obscuring the blazing sun. It happened in a flash. I saw a bottle, and it wasn't a bottle. It wasn't anything. It was just elements. It had only a conventional reality. It wasn't a true bottle. The spittoon wasn't a true spittoon. The glass wasn't a true glass. Everything had changed. It changed back and forth. And then I brought the awareness inwards. I looked at everything in my body as not belonging to me, but as all possessing a merely conventional reality. As a result of this experience, Lung Po summarized, Don't be hesitant in your practice. Give it everything you've got. Make the mind resolute. Keep practicing. However much you listen to Dhamma talks, however much you study, although the knowledge that results may be correct, it doesn't reach the truth itself. And if that's the case, then there's no end to doubts and hesitation. But when the truth is realized, there's completion. Then, whatever anyone might say or think on the subject is irrelevant. It's naturally and irrevocably just that way. Others may laugh or cry, be happy or sad, but when the natural mind has arisen, it's completely unwavering. The mind that has entered the stream is not easy to distinguish from the mind of someone crazy. The two are very similar. They both deviate from the norm, but they differ in the qualities they possess. First Disciples Luang Po decided it was time to return to Ubon, and after stopping to pay his respects to Luang Bu Ginnery, he set out on the long walk southwards. As on previous journeys, he rested at Ban Ba Tao in Yasotorn province. The villagers were pleased to see him again, and many came out in the evenings to hear him discourse on the Dhamma. One night, a couple who had been faithful supporters since his first visits to the village asked if he would accept their teenage son as an attendant and train him for ordination into the monkhood. Lung Po assented, and some days later the slight figure of Tong Di 
head newly shaven and dressed in fresh white robes, followed Long Paw out onto the road. After a journey of some ten days, the two travellers reached Bangor and put up their glots in the cremation forest. Soon Tong Di was joined by a lad called Tiang, and the two of them prepared for the novice going forth ceremony together. When they had learnt the necessary chanting thoroughly, Lung Po took them to one of the large monasteries in the local town, where its abbot conducted the ceremony. These two boys may thus lay claim to be considered Lung Po's first two disciples. During his stay at Mangor, Lung Po's mother, relatives and friends all came to pay their respects. There would be a group of women following him back after arms round, bringing side dishes in the binto food carriers, hanging from poles on their bony shoulders. Dishes such as bamboo shoot curries, fermented fish, chili sauce, leafy morning glory, and bitter sadao, or krong mangoes and namwa bananas, the best of whatever they had, were all offered to Luang Po and the two shy but ravenous novices, to eat with their inevitable ball of sticky rice. Then in the evenings, after their dinner, the village women would come again, accompanied by their men this time, all back from the fields and rested. Lung Po had not been home for a long time, and everyone was keen to see him, some perhaps as much to hear of his adventures in distant parts as to listen to Dhamma. This was the pre-television age, when oral traditions were still strong, and Luang Po was a compelling speaker who could cast a spell on his listeners with the sheer power and flow of his words, similes and anecdotes. It would be late at night before the villagers returned to their homes, still basking in the afterglow of his oratory, and Luang Po was, in a sense, on a mission. He was intent on persuading his mother to keep the five precepts strictly, the more he practiced, the more confidence he had in the teachings, and often his thoughts turned to Mare Pim and how he could inspire her to develop in the Dhamma. She was one of his first successors. To his old friends, Lung Po had changed. The outgoing and effervescent char they had once known now seemed more reserved, inward, somewhat aloof. But their sadness was tempered with respect and a sense of the rightness of it. The ideal of the monk and the behaviour appropriate to him was familiar to them, and it inspired them. After fifteen days, Luang Po and the novice Tongdi set off walking southwards towards the district of Gantaralak, leaving novice Tieng at Wadbanko. They put up their glots in a large, unspoilt forest outside the village of Suan Klui. It was a fine place to practice. Lay support was strong, and Luang Po decided to stay for the rain's retreat. Auspicious Dreams Although the short biography of Luang Po, written in the late 1960s, is an important source of information for the present chapter of this book, it consists of little more than a number of random anecdotes woven together in a formulaic style. There are large and frustrating gaps in the story. In 1981, as Luang health started to rapidly decline, two of his senior Western disciples decided to interview their teacher and garner more information about his early life, with a view to writing a new biography. 
They set off with a new tape recorder and many blank tapes in great anticipation, but returned a few days later looking glum. Apart from one or two stories of his prodigious appetite for Chinese noodles as a young monk, Lung Po had been almost completely uncooperative. The only interesting answer he gave, if a rather puzzling one, was in response to queries about the most important event of those early years. Lung Po cited the three auspicious dreams he had had on consecutive nights at Suan Klui. It's rare that the details of someone else's dreams make for enjoyable reading, whoever the dreamer might be. There is nothing especially fascinating in Lung Po's dreams, but as he gave them such importance and was able to relate them in such detail many years afterwards, they are now included in their entirety. In the first dream, someone offered him an egg, which he tossed onto the ground. The shell broke and two chicks ran out, which he caught one in each hand. They then immediately changed into delightful small boys, just learning to walk. A voice announced that the one in his left hand was called Bun Tong, which means literally merit flag, and the one in the right, Bun Tam, Dhamma merit. After a while, Bun Tong caught dysentery and died nestled in his hand. The voice said, Bun Tong is dead, and now only Bun Tam remains. Then Lung Po woke up. The question arose in his mind as to the significance of the dream, and the answer appeared in response. It was merely a natural phenomenon. His doubts subsided. In the second dream, he found himself pregnant. His belly was swollen and it was difficult for him to move around. And yet, at the same time, he still felt that he was a monk. Just before he was ready to give birth, he was invited to take his meal in a thatched hut in the middle of a field bounded by a stream. There were already three monks upstairs in the hut and they had started their meal. Lung Po was close to the time of birth and so the lay people invited him to eat down below by himself. As the monks above ate, Lung Po gave birth to a radiantly smiling boy with soft hair on the back of his hands and soles of his feet. Lung Po's stomach felt shrunken. He felt as if he'd really given birth and checked to see if there was any blood or fluid to be cleaned up, but it was dry. He was thus reminded of the birth of Prince Siddhartha. The lay people started to discuss what would be the best thing for a monk to eat who'd just given birth, and they decided on three grilled doctor fish. Lung Po felt exhausted and didn't want anything, but he forced himself to eat so that the donors would make merit. Before starting his meal, he gave the child to the laywomen to hold, and on finishing, they gave it back. As he received it, the child fell from his hands, and he woke up. Again, when the doubt arose in his mind as to what the dream meant, simply by reminding himself that it was a natural phenomenon and nothing more, his mind was put to rest. The next night, Lung Po dreamt once more. This time, together with a novice, he had received an invitation to take his meal on a mountaintop. The path twisted up around the mountain like the worlds on a snail shell. It was a full moon day, and the mountain was very high, its peak cool and verdant. An exquisite piece of cloth had been made into a sunbreak for them, and they sat down in its shade. After some time, they were invited down to a cave on the mountainside. 
หลวงพ่อ's mother แม่พิม his aunt แม่มี and a large number of lay people were waiting with offerings of food แม่พิม had brought watermelon and other fruits แม่มี had brought grilled chicken and duck หลวงพ่อ joked with his aunt that if that was the sort of food she was fond of she should move into town she smiled broadly in response After the meal, Lung Po gave a dhamma talk, and then woke up. The meaning of the dreams is not obvious, although the first would seem to symbolize Lung Po's choice of the spiritual over the material. The second dream may well refer to his enlightenment, and the third, his decision to teach. The fact that Lung Po never thought it necessary to explain the dreams is an important consideration. If anyone had suggested interpretations to him, and only a Western disciple would have been so forward, his most likely response would have been to laugh and tell them not to think so much. Dhamma medicine. At the beginning of 1951, Lung Po left Suan Kloi for Bangkok, where he visited the famous meditation master Lung Pu Sot in his temple in the suburb of Bak Nam. He arrived in a subdued Bangkok. It was a hard, dark time of incessant power struggles in the capital. One coup attempt had occurred in 1949, and another was soon to take place. In the meantime, the American-backed Field Marshal Pibun was in the midst of a ruthless campaign to suppress dissent to his rule. Among those particularly feeling his ire were politicians with the fledgling and short-lived Isan separatist movement. Although Luang Po walked the same hot pavements that had recently seen blood spilt, he moved through a different world, intent only on protecting his mindfulness amongst the rush of scooters and the enticing smells of the roadside stalls. Politics, in which transient forms of craving and suffering were played out on a national stage, were of no interest to Luang Po. He was searching for the root of things, and he maintained this aloofness from the passions and prejudices of the day throughout his life, even in the later years of prominence and fame. He is not known to have ever expressed an opinion on a political matter. His concerns were always with matters that, in his own words, have an end. After a few days learning about Lung Pu Sot's way of practice, Lung Po decided to continue his travels onwards to the former capital of Ayutthaya, which lies some 80 kilometers upstream from Bangkok, on the banks of the Jaubriya River. His destination was Wat Yai Chai Mongkon, an historic monastery now administered by the Dhammayut Order, whose resident community was loosely affiliated with the Lung Bu Man group. It was to be Lung Po's home for the next year. Unfortunately, Lung Po hardly ever spoke of his experiences at Wat Yai Chai Mongkon, Externally, at least, there was probably little to tell. He had by now built up a considerable momentum in his practice and was most in need of a quiet, stable environment free from disruptions to consolidate and further develop the steady progress he had been making. This was exactly what this monastery provided him. The abbot Ajahn Chaloi was keen to offer support and Lung Po took the opportunity to immerse himself in the practice secluded from lay people and without external responsibilities. The only anecdote passed down from this period is of another severe illness. In his first year at Ayutthaya, 
Luang Po fell ill with a serious complaint in his digestive tract that produced a painful swelling on his left side. The intense discomfort it caused was aggravated by the return of an old asthmatic problem. He was determined not to go to the local hospital and decided to treat himself by fasting and meditation, a regime traditionally referred to as Dhamma Osata or Dhamma Medicine. For eight days and nights, subsisting on plain water and completely abstaining from sleep, he threw everything into his meditation practice. The results exceeded his expectations. He revealed afterwards how amazed he'd been at the marvellous potential unlocked when his mind had been forced into a corner. The value of pushing oneself to the edge, to do more than one thinks one can do, was to be a recurrent theme in later teachings. After eight days, Luang Po felt the illness to be abating, and when Ajahn Chalui requested Luang Po to start eating again, he readily complied. All his illnesses had disappeared, and they did not return. <laughs>